so you so the thing about archaeologists and i've studied archaeology is they will always take the younger timeline out of portion that's what they do it's their job is that right probably not so i push the timeline back as long as there wasn't the ice cap there do you see what i mean yeah you have to kind of have that now when it comes to further afield with things like atlantis for, for example if you were a survivor from atlantis and you were floating on you know a, a piece of debris let's say and you were coming across the atlantic the current would naturally take you to the bay of sligo in ireland and that's where we have the oldest monuments in the british isles so i think that uh, survivors would have gone naturally through the currents and this has been calculated incidentally is how the, the currents function and that's why you have the oldest monuments there so i think there is different cultures that have had different influences in different parts of the world and we as authors and you as researchers doing these shows we're trying to unravel this still you know book after book has been written about yes. it but there's always something that's saying is that actually correct and i don't believe any one author has all of the answers anyway i think it's going to be a collective experience of these places that will give the answers that we need thank you atlantis yeah if you imagine that in in celtic magic you have the four elements okay the fire are called salamanders uh, water is the undines or the ondines, O-N-D-I-N-E-S, or U-N is sometimes spelled undines or ondines. Um, yeah, and then you, you have the gnomes for the element earth and sylphs for the element of air. But the, the idea is, so the people would come under the uh, undines. Do you see what I mean? That's, that's their realm, that's their, their watery realm, and that equates to the West, for, for example. But the, the idea in Celtic magic is there's no point calling in the undines if I'm an emotional mess.
when you go to a site, connect the Akashic record of the past, the place, and then that information will slowly come up into your consciousness. So we can connect to the past. And I feel because, you know, I've discovered some of what the ancestors look like, it's because you, I can connect to the Akashic memory of place. And, and anyone can do that. It's not rocket science and it's free if you're a free site. Uh, and the, the thing is, you know, when you, when you come to some of the real power places, it's a sad reflection of this is being denied by places like Stonehenge for having security guards. You can't go into Newgrange, into Ireland without a guide uh, or Noth uh, in, in Ireland. So, you know, we have to claim back our past and we have to, I feel, connect. Also, what I think is magical about the, the large Henge monuments, whether that's Avebury or wherever uh, you are, the massive ones that could fit thousands of people in. Stonehenge was actually phase two, quite small. Phase one, you could fit thousands in. Atlantis. day it is indeed wonderful we've we've ventured com officially out of the winter and we are uh, we're in the spring it's official said somebody said said a thing we're here we did it whatever that means it means many things it used to mean many things especially to the ancient celts and druids and humans of a spiritual path and it means many things to us here right now. And that's what this conversation today with Maria Wheatley is all about. Talking about the ancient culture. The ancient Celtic culture, Druid, Druidism, and, and much more about the sacred sites. She's an ancient dowser or has dowsing uh Gnosis from uh, ancient times has been literally handed down in a Dowsing Bloodline family. You'll find out more about that in today's conversation. We are co-hosted with our buddy Indy Sage, which you guys have heard him on um, the Slow Burns on Sunday when we do the YouTube live stream Slow Burns. And if you guys haven't checked that out, it's a pretty much every weekly show uh every week show we we go on sunday live on youtube and do a different topic you can click the link down below go to the youtube channel if you haven't already subscribe absolutely subscribe 
if you're not subscribed to the YouTube, please do that. I know I always talk about the Telegram group chat and how you need to get on it. You do. Get on it. But we all know that you can't have a YouTube without having a telly, and you can't have a telly without having a YouTube. It's just how it goes. So subscribe to us on there. Check out what slow burns we've already done, what live streams we've already done. We always have a great panel of friends, researchers coming on to chat about interesting topics. We just did, um, directly after this conversation with Mario Wheatley, us three jumped into last Sunday's slow burn and talked about mythologies of the underworld. So it was, um, you want to listen to this episode, then go to the YouTube and check out that live stream. You'll actually hear a more um, actual consecutive timeline there of uh, some of the, the fun things that we got to dive deep on on Sunday. So go and do that. The YouTube is there. If you want to support us, uh, which would be so very helpful and great, and we'd love you if you did. Uh, it's all good. You can go to the Patreon, $3 a month. There is a, a bunch of new bonus content on there. Shout out to Dan for holding it down with multiple new shows on the Patreon specifically. It's amazing. Um, and Dan has Portals of Dan, uh, which is that's also on a regular RSS feed, which you can catch some of those individual shows. So if you want to support us, the best way to do it, one of the best ways, uh, besides just listening to the show, sharing, subscribing, uh, and talking about these crazy things, is... Giving us a little bit of love on the Patreon and checking out that bonus content. You can also grab yourself a pair of shorts. Yes, coffee mug, uh-huh, t-shirt, hoodie, bucket hat, backpack, whole bunch of cool merch stuff, uh, fun designs. Check them out. Uh, legit art from real artists that we like and that we've had commissioned some art pieces because, you know, that's what we do, man. That's what life is. We're supporting everybody in their art as they travel along the little river into the other side eventually. hey oh, Much love to you guys. This is a fantastic episode. Um, we are going to slowly start wrapping up the Celtic theme and the Druid theme and the Tuatha de Danan theme and going to the Templars. We're going to dedicate a month or two specifically to the Templars and giving them some homage and looking at what those crazy SOBs were up to creating the banking system and, you know, <laughs> out here being secret assassins for the Pope and whatnot. You know what I mean? Let's, let's dive deep into that. So if you guys have any guest recommendations for that specific topic, Feel free to email us, which is also down in the show notes. You can get all of that great info if you want to support us, if you want to do the YouTubes, if you want to give us a personal email telling us about your time in the Galapagos Islands when you went Easter egg hunting with a real six-foot bunny and you weren't on psychedelics, or you were. You want to email that story to us? Please do. We'd love to hear it. And we love you very much. So... Without further ado, enjoy today's episode with Mario Wheatley.
Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Rising from the Ashes. I'm Daniel Naki Dan. I'm the Homer Romy. Hello. That's the Homer Romy. We also got another guest co-host in the house today. You know from the Sunday Slow Burns, Indie Sage. What's happening? What's happening, guys? Glad to be here today. It's going to be an exciting show, and uh, yeah, glad to be a part of it. Excellent, man. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. And we are here with a fabulous guest who you guys might have heard on Moon Mysteries with Gator and Kaylee. Uh, and that is Maria Wheatley. Maria, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, this is your first time here on Rising from the Ashes. So could you give a little uh, background about yourself and your story and um, how you got into dowsing and how you got into finding out the ley lines of Europe and exploring all the other dimensions and um, into being a Druidist. Yes, yeah, really, I was being brought up with all of this. I got taught dowsing by my late father. He inherited the unpublished surveys of another master dowser. And so I've eventually inherited lots of surveys on earth energies. There's 49 different types of earth energies. Most people know about eight or nine. So it's been my heritage. I feel like it's in my blood because, you know, I've been going to ancient sites ever since I was about seven years old. So I've been to numerous sites worldwide. I've doused in 17 different countries and looked at monuments from ancient America to ancient Egypt and Bohemia in between. So 49 different earth energies that we know of or that you know of or that only exist. Is this only 49 or? 49 main types that have been discovered by master dowsers and confirmed by numerous master dowsers over the past 80 years. Because a lot of people sense the earth. And it's a wonderful thing to do, of course. Go out and sense the earth. It's a, it's a grace. But sometimes the art of dowsing isn't just the dowsing rods crossing. It's interpreting that which you douse. So the more knowledge that you have, the better you can interpret it rather than just saying positive, negative. It's the this, it's that, if you see what I mean. So it's, it's a wonderful journey, and I liken it to getting to know Gaia. It's like Gaia's language, the language of Mother Earth. So that's the intriguing thing. It's listening to Gaia and understanding that she has many ex expressions and many patterns that she emits, and it's those patterns, mm. like spirals and circles, that were integrated into ancient sites. Mm. Worldwide. So mathematics, like somatics, uh symbolism, yeah. Yeah, yes, uh, it can be. It can be likened to that because most of the, let's say, sixty percent of these patterns are emitted by yin water. That's water that's born within the womb of Gaia and is independent of rainfall. Gaia produces water. I mean, a geologist would dispute that hands down, but actually, the Russians recently found water 11 miles down and didn't understand how it got there. Esoteric water diviners say because Gaia produces it. That type of water makes mesmerizing energy patterns. So it's that particular energy that the ancients were looking for. Wow. Sites at the esoteric center of a site. That's the near center 
Never the geometric center. The ancients weren't bothered about the geometric center. It was looking for the esoteric center of a spiral energy pattern. This, my automatic, I had a couple things my brain went to first. Uh, the first thing was this <laughs> classic comedy movie from the 90s called Waterboy when he had this very special blue water. Um, and I'm wondering, <laughs> did he get gifted that by a master dowser? Um, all jokes aside, though, um, you know, there's this uh, these classic tales, and it's it's actually in the theme today of what we'll be talking about later uh, as we go into the mythologies of the underworld, um, uh, these different things. But <clears throat> the the four rivers that meet at the central point, um, you know, these different uh, Atlantean themes and things like that, and these different esoteric uh, Garden of Eden. Yes, in the Garden of Eden. Do you think they were talking about inner rivers or this this esoteric uh, uh, water that you're speaking of? Both, I think. I think they're an analogy because, for example, through all Celtic myths, you have one particular legend that has endured thousands of, of years, and that's that stones can move to go down to the river to drink. Normally six days after a new or full moon. Now, what that means is remembering in our collective unconscious that there's underground water associated with the stones. Why six days after a new or full moon? Well, that's when the geospiral, that's the spiral energy pattern emitted by deep water, starts to rotate in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. And that's when the druids would only pick mistletoe. So the sixth day after a new or full moon was the druid day of the ancient Celts. Not the full moon, not the first quarter, which is a day later, but that particular day was holy and venerated. I have a question about the dowsing. Um, I, I do some work with pendulums, and I would assume that that's a similar energy. Now, I know that when I use a pendulum, I've kind of, I guess, trained my subconscious mind to show me answers in a certain way that's specific to me. Is that similar to dowsing? Do you have a certain way that you interpret things and get different readings from different individuals that have the same message? In a way, it is. I mean, the show me technique was invented by my late father, actually. So he was uh, a lazy dowser. So he'd always go, show me this, show me that. I hate to break the, the bond about that one. Uh, but uh, it is similar. But in this type of dowsing for earth energy, if you if you recognize the energy pattern, you have a double interpretation rather than just show me. Do you see what I mean? You're recognizing as well as being led to it. And that's the beauty, because you're relating to Gaia's energy pattern. So it's not just a case of finding something. I say to dowsers, I do not douse unless I'm going to interact with the energy, because, you know, I, I got brought up with a lot of male dowsers about 30 years ago, my late father included, no disrespect to these, these guys here today at all. Of course not. But they would go out dancing at an ancient site like Stonehenge and say, I found a ley line, I found an earth current, I found a geospiral. But they never did anything with it. In my femininity, I suddenly thought, well, why am I dousing for this? If I'm not going to interact with it, why should I kind of almost intrude upon it? So I tell Earth energies and aside what I'm going to do long before I go to actually douse it. So I kind of communicate to the site and say, you know, I'm coming again. I'm back again. I say I'm back again. Normally I'm back again and I'm going to be doing dousing. I may have a group with me. Please, may I have permission to do that? 
that. And then there's a beautiful relationship forms. I love that. Now, are plants part of some of the readings that you can get from dowsing? Do they play a part in that? I know they'll probably play an integral part in the water. And I know you've mentioned before that the plants are a channel for the water. That's like the memory of the earth. But um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, all, all plants are attracted to different types of earth energy. Some love really toxic earth energy that would be geopathic stress and negative to you. And others don't. Others like more benign energies that you and I would would like. And for, for example, in Hopi tradition of the First Nation people of America, I hope I've got the terminology correct here. I, I never mean to be disrespectful if I get something wrong uh, either, trust my heart. And uh, they notice, for example, that cottonwood trees, they're very attracted to mm -hmm. underground water, like yew trees would mm -hmm. be here, and they're revered by them because they're so sacred. Same over here, the ones that are associated to the deep waters, like a yew tree, an apple tree, for example, here, uh, they were revered medicinally and as holy trees to the ancient Celtic peoples. Is it, is what's the master map? Okay, there's got it. What what does this master map look like? If you were to zoom out and and see this like major shape that these the um <clears throat> that this these earth lines are, are 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 creating, is there like a master shape or some sort of like <clears throat> big bigger map picture that that is being uh, shown to us from here? And and has that been like cart? cartographized uh no no or of any sort the, the only thing that has been done globally like that is ley lines because they're so simple mm -hmm. when it comes to earth currents uh, two of them have been mapped worldwide by robert coon because for example avery henge the world's largest stone circle links into uluru uh as rock in australia and Lake Titicaca, for, for example, they're mm. earth currents. Now, earth currents meander around a ley line. So it, late, when people get fixated on ley lines, they see straight lines everywhere, but forget there's meandering currents that entwine them. Now, going back to your question, Roman, you'd be mesmerized if that was done because <laughs> uh, you have spirals, you have lines, you have currents, you have serpentine energies, you have energies rising out of the ground going into uh, the ground. And then six days after full moon, extra spiral patterns occur in ancient site. So it's constantly in flux. We tend to think of when we think about ley lines and earth currents, they're, they're kind of like a 2D model. But if you imagine everything is happening all at once with things coming out of the ground, going in, and uh, lots of different types of energy, it's mesmerizing and it would look chaotic yeah. So we tend to break them down in different energy patterns to make sense of them. But in effect, at an ancient site, everything's going on all at once. But why do you think the ancients <laughs> built their sites there? Because everything is going on. That's a geodetic power center. It's a power center. It's not where two ley lines cross or fall converge. It's where all of this is going on. And you get massive circular patterns. Imagine circles uh, of energy moving and moving and moving. And the standing stones were placed upon them. 
uh, and the energy is going up through the stones and then being beamed out by the stones. For readers that would like to see that, go to one of my websites and I've got an article on megalithic energy there. We detected the electromagnetic signal at the point the Earth energy is being emitted from. And if you stand by that emission zone, you're being bathed in Earth energy and megalithic energy. What's not to like? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, to here in, uh, in Hawaii, there's many, many portals. Uh, people have <clears throat> gotten lost um, with a big group of people and find themselves in an ancient heiau. Um, or, you know, they just like are walking through the jungle and then find themselves in a structure, like an old structure and things. And, and, and time voids happen. And I... Um, I'm curious about what uh, you know about, like, Hawaii and if you know anything about, like, the ancient Polynesian uh, <clears throat> explorers and their and their knowledge of these uh, ancient Earth energies. Well, I think, really, you're going back to Lemuria with places like Hawaii has been rem remnants of, if, if we may use a, uh, the analogy of a lost continent. Now, when uh, a lost continent goes down, the, the geomancers... Uh, suggest and believe that then the earth energies have to re-anchor so if you imagine something's mm. going quite chaotic in your life yeah mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. suddenly you have to re-anchor everything that's what happens in terms of you know if atlantis went down or, or if uh, an island went down the energies have to kind of resettle and hawaii and the other some of the other islands around mm -hmm. that area became anchors for that energy so they have basically oh. got double the amount of energy that maybe they would have had originally, if you, if you see what I'm saying, because the other energies have become attracted to it over a long, long period of time. I mean, we're talking about, you know, 12,000 years ago, uh, Helena Balatsky uh, commented on places like Memoria. So, you know, who knows what the time date is truly. Yeah. So it's had, although it's had some time to anchor in, it does make a place especially powerful what is your uh belief on like the cosmological timeline of uh these ancient civilizations uh do you have like a theory that you maybe have been working on or building when it comes to the succession of uh these ancient civilizations because your most of your work is obviously <clears throat> venerating the ancient goddess and and the british isles and, and ancient druid druidic stuff and and plus much more but through your research, have you come through a success of the timeline or do you have like a, a working theory on maybe who like who, who was first Atlanteans or Lemurians and then Atlanteans and uh, Hyperboreans or anything along those lines there? Yes, we, it's an inter It's interesting to look back to the past because there are no written records. Mm. I mean, you, you're going by Plato for Atlantis and, you know, uh, people talking about uh, mm. Lemuria. So, I mean, they are conceptual, but I think they were a reality. Uh, I've, I've kind of done a lot of research all across uh, Europe and, and the ancient world. Now, when it comes to Great Britain and Europe, you do have a particular timeline because there were ice caps. You know, uh, Stonehenge didn't have the ice cap 
that area where I am in the south of England, but all of the rest did have a, an ice cap on it. So you can start to to date that. A, a great friend of mine, sadly departed a couple of years ago, was an author on pyramids and a very large mound in this landscape that I live amid. And it was dated by archaeologists to 2480 BC through what's called carbon dating uh, 14. Uh, luminosity testing is much, much better. That's when you go right the way down to the old surface level and you calculate the last time daylight hit that. It's called a luminosity testing, but it's quite expensive compared to carbon-14. But what John Cowie did uh, to honour John's work into timelines is he took a piece of carbon from the centre of Silbury when they reopened that mound, as did the archaeologist team, uh, led by David Fields and uh, Jim Leary. And J David, uh, John Rather's uh, analysis, independently done, was 12,000 BC, and the archaeologist was 2,480 BC. And right the way to the Taurus Mountains, uh, Aries, as we might know, is ruled by Mars. It's a fiery sign. All of the wars, all of the world wars have been started under Mars energy, which these countries are influenced by. The, I'll go ahead, Dan. Dan, Dan, Dan. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That was amazing. That's all I have to say. <laughs> so you, you, you cover um, something called Druidic Star Astrology um, on your website, Esoteric College, where you can do courses which everybody should go definitely check out. The The link will be in the show notes. Um, <clears throat> can you tell us more about this and um, maybe what these courses cover and, and what is Druidic Star Astrology? Yes. Uh, have you heard of Dolores Cannon? Yes. yes. Of course. Of course. I was her sacred <laughs> site guide for many, many years. Okay. Oh. So, I know. Well, looking back, well, what a privilege. I really was a big Dolores fan. And so, you know, I, I met Dolores at Stonehenge. I know all of her interpretations of sacred sites here and elsewhere through through Dolores's eyes, as it were. So uh, basically, I was at a, an ancient site near Stonehenge. And as I'm sure you guys have probably experienced, uh, I got a massive download of how the Druids figured out past lives to do with astrology. But instead of using the normal circular zodiac or horoscope, natal chart, as the posh astrologers like to call it, <laughs> uh, I, I, I made the symbol of the heart chakra and all the planets that fall in the symbol of the heart chakra, and it's really easy to calculate that, represents important past lives, but related to this incarnation, not all of your past lives. Do you see what I mean? It's, mm. it's specific oh. to it, this incarnation. Does it move through these different chakras as you go, as you're part of your journey, or these like maybe side-by-side -side timelines that we might be experiencing then? <clears throat> well, yes, it's, it's looking through the, the, instead of having a circular chart, it's a symbol of the heart chakra, and you go through the planets there. And of course, you know, Dolores was uh, the top uh, past life regression therapist. I started talking to Dolores about this and uh, <laughs> saying, you know, I think it's got worth and merit. She had a chat with me, had a, a look at some charts that I had done and that she had regress people and they were very similar i wouldn't say they were identical because one's talking from the soul under regression 
and the other is being interpreted. But nonetheless, they were very, very similar. And hence, she said, I'll publish your book, Maria. <laughs> so that's published by Ozark Mountain Publishing, which is Dolores Cannon's publishing house. I think it's important to know our spiritual gifts from our past lives. And it's also good to know our challenges from past lives mm. so that we can heal those and look to our gifts and elaborate on those. And I believe that that's how the Druids uh, understood past lives. But more than that, the Druids never wrote anything down in Celtic times. They thought it was too sacred in which to do so. Wow. And then I got, in ancient Egypt, they were writing on scrolls and manuscripts. The Celts being a very, the kind of in Druidry, it's about the creativity of it. The then flow. I realized that they're the flow the Arwen, as it's called. And so I believe that they connected to the energy of the planet. And instead of learning the attributes of Mars, ego, fiery, masculine, warlike, they they tuned into the planet and got fed the information from the heart of the planet to their heart, heart to heart and hand in hand. Wow. So so I I believe that's what the what the Druids were doing. And I've done hundreds and hundreds of those types of readings with excellent feedback because the thing about the past lives and the planets especially the the planets they want us as humanity to grow up on gaia take responsibility for this planet and mm -hmm. to really raise the frequency with with love and healing so the planets will say come on you this is about you grow up move on Get, get your spirituality higher frequency and we'll help you. So the planets want to help us to help Gaia, their sister as well. So it's all working together in a cohesive, caring environment, the solar system, S-O-U-L dash la, solar system. Yes. It's about the, it's about the soul uh, as has as my druid uh, master that was with me to do the download at that ancient site near Stonehenge suggested to me. So, uh, so yeah, so they're, they're teachers, mighty teachers, the planets. So uh, what was the, um, that word Awen? How do you, how would you spell that in our language? A W E N. Uh, it's, it's Gaelic. So they pronounce an A and R. So it's like Awen. Awen. And, is... and Arwen means energy that's constantly flowing. It's inspiration. It's poetic. And if if you get the Arwen, let's say I'm writing away and I, I suddenly go, oh, yes. And it all makes sense. We have those moments in our lives. That's the Arwen. But if you receive the Arwen, you have to give it away. It's got to oh, move. Yeah. Fire someone else. You need to give love to someone else and inspiration. And then they get the Arwen. And then it moves on. Oh. And so each time you get something, you, you give it away. That's that's the idea, and it ever flows. So what was the Druid's take on um, on this, like, Akashic understanding? Because, like, the kind of the, the um, feeling I'm getting, instead of writing something down, they, they believed that there was, like, maybe a consciousness or a, a energy field that they could extract this information from. So what did they, did they have a word for that? Was there a realm for that? Um, and were, were trees a part of this? Because we know trees are a very big part of the Druidic understanding in the way that they had maybe connected with Alwyn. 
Uh, absolutely. I mean, yes, it's about that that connection. That is the main thing, whether it's a planetary consciousness or the consciousness of a tree, which they personified as a dryad, a tree spirit. So it's a personification. And they they had a whole kind of 25 sacred trees, which they called the Oam. It's spelled O-G-H-A-M, like Ogham, but you pronounce it Oam, like Oam mummy. <laughs> That's how I always say to people to remember <laughs> And, and the, the Oum is a, is a sacred understanding of the teacher trees. They're all here to, to teach us, to advise us, if you will. And the Oum has been turned into cards, like a deck, you know, like a tarot deck, uh, if you will, of 25 cards. Each has a symbol. And for example, we're coming up to the spring equinox, aren't we? Which represents new beginnings. It's a good time to seed new projects. Well, in the terms of the trees of the ancient Druids, the first tree to grow after any disaster, let's say it's the Ice Age, the first <laughs> tree that roots itself is birch. So the first tree of the Oum is birch. And birch, the silver birch tree, she's called the Lady of the Woods because she's got mm. fine hair that flows and whispers. And the Lady of the Woods represents new beginnings, time to seed a new project. And, and then birch was the literally the mother of the woods. So she's very much revered. And especially at birch. this time of the year, for some people, you know, I would, um, if I want new beginnings, her symbol is like that. If you look up the OM symbol, it's a straight line going down and then a line coming across in the middle. That represents new beginnings that you could carve onto a piece of driftwood. You could carve that onto a candle, for example, with reverence, tuning into the consciousness of the birch tree, which uh, is a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. And, you know, with the sacredness, we can get the wisdoms of the tree to help us. Because a birch might say to me, Maria, you think about doing that at this spring equinox? Uh-uh. I'll give you the R1 to do something else. This is what it means. So when we tune in, we can get inspiration from trees, stones, rivers. But but the OM is a very beautiful, uh, very beautiful journey. And the second tree is Rowan, the mountain ash. And that mm. represents protection. And I always say to people that I, I teach OM2, what's your inspiration about that? Don't just go with the key words that an author has read. It's a good grounding to start with. So for me, in my journey of the first two trees of the OM, I, I made a kind of like poetic uh, expression of that. Uh, Birch gave birth to the trees and then she called out to Rowan and Rowan said, I will protect the forest that is about to grow because it represents protection. And you can make your own song of the woods. You can make your own understanding. That's the best way to do any form of divination rather than just repeat the words of another whose heart may not have been in it, but the book was written by them. Do you see what I mean? It's mm -hmm. sometimes uh, like that. How, how do you spell this O-M? O-G-A-A-M. Like oh, yes. Ham, but yes. it's pronounced O-M. Beautiful. Are there any uh, associations with the O-M sticks and the stars? I know they're referenced to trees for each of the different symbols. But you mentioned that the stars, uh, the, the planets, uh, were great teachers. Uh, is there any association with uh, those planets being teachers associated with the different goddesses or gods or perhaps the trees? Absolutely. 
Absolutely, that's a that's a great question, uh, Dan, and uh, quite an inspiration one. Yes, I mean, when we think about the stars, just for one, we think about it through the Greek zodiac, which is great. Mm -hmm. It works. You've got Aries for the Golden Fleece. You've got you know the Bull for Taurus. But but the Celts had a different star system, just just like the Incas did, for example. But not a the Romans were our conquerors. You know mm -hmm. they they committed genocide side uh really and enslaved uh, a lot of us we were enslaved and taken back uh, to rome flogged publicly uh and all of that sort of thing so a lot of the papers didn't survive but the ones that did tended to be from wales and ireland because the romans didn't get in that far to them and the scots the picts the picts would fight the romans naked with woad spirals blue colored spirals on their face ranting i think uh, you know the kind of civil druids thought what what's going on here and they backed away from scotland so a lot of the mythologies come from ireland and the surviving goddess for example is uh arianrod uh caridwen caridwen's a shape-shifting hag goddess she's very powerful and uh, so it's a, like a bit of a broken past for, for those Celtic scholars that say everything's very easy and it has an order, it isn't. You're, you're trying to pick out from times past that were chaotic and made ruinous by the Romans and other invaders as well. The Normans, the French being one in 1066, they, they burnt a lot of the English manuscripts. And that's why you don't hear about English Celticism, because ours all got burnt. And you hear more about Irish, Scotland. And Wales. Do you see what I mean? It's because we took the brunt of being taken over in 1066 at the Battle of Hastings. That's beautiful. Now, I know the planets move a little bit differently than the constellations, obviously. Um, what kind of teachings would you get from the planets? Would they be specific to the color of that planet, perhaps having a representation of their lessons? Absolutely. I mean, they all have their own day, for example, right. you know, uh, like Monday is Lunar Day, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Mars, Wednesday, Woden's Day for Odin, for Mercury, because all of the gods have different names and different religious backgrounds. And then Thursday is Jupiter, Freya's Day, Friday, Goddess Day, Saturn Day, Saturday, Sunday, Sunday. So you, you can time it. OK, so you could work with the goddess energy on a Monday and a Friday, but then even more timing is everything to the, uh, the Celtic magician. So you have what's called planetary hours and the first hour of any day, uh, like Monday, the first hour of, I mean by dawn, you know, the first hour of dawn, uh, obviously when the sun rises, you only have to do Google for that these days. And let's say it's, I don't know, it's around about six o'clock here at the moment before we go on daylight saving time. And so that first hour is always the hour of the moon. So that's a very, very potent time. And the first hour of Sunday is the hour of the sun. So you can really tune into the planets when they're in their power. And in, in my form of uh, druidry that I've expressed for many years now, you do things when you're in your power. 
So, you know, if Maria's feeling good today, I'm in my power and I can pull, I can talk to Jupiter today. But if I'm having a bad hair day and I'm feeling really rough and I'm not <laughs> feeling as good as what, I'm not in my power. Now is not the time. I could do all of the cleansing, all the smudging. You have to be in your heart power. Do you see what I mean? You, mm -hmm. you, you don't come from weakness with a, a four billion old planetary being. You you come into your your grace. But I mean power in a non-egotistical way of your, your feeling that you can work with this mighty consciousness hand in hand, heart to heart. And one easy technique to do this with, I mean, it is, it's really a wonderful process if it feels right for, for you to do this. You never do anything that doesn't feel right. You can literally try and tune into the heart chakra of a planet. Yeah, the heart always speaks the truth. And uh, tune in from your own heart to the heart chakra of the planet. And just in a meditative, contemplative way, even a playful, childlike way, you might get something back. Mm -hmm. You know, because you're reaching to, to the heart of something that has been around for millions of years how how long did it take you to start to develop that um that practice and when did that come into your understanding of like tapping in because you know you know for us all on the spiritual path and the journey you know meditation is something that we're all capable of tapping into something we're all capable of but it does take time to shed the layers of the insecurities and, and the ego and things to actually get into it and to fully let it flow and go. Um, but what are, what are some practices that actually helped you start to develop um, these different levels of, of shedding the layers and be able to expose your heart and connect these, uh, your silver cord? I feel the first thing for me was realizing that you're working with uh, planetary consciousness for over four billion years old. What am I? What do I know? You know I, mean, I mean, I mean, come on. And, and the planet can see through everything. Of Jupiter, he's the mighty, he was personified of the biggest gods in any pantheon of gods. Nice. Yeah. Jupiter, Zeus, you, you can call him what, what you will, Odin, if you're, if you're into the Norse. And these planets can literally, when we relate to them, they can see through us. So if, if you're going there for some egotistical thing, you really think this wise four billion year old planet <laughs> is going to give you anything? I doubt it very much. Uh, and they won't mislead either. You know, uh, and the, the, the wonderful thing is uh, throughout history, you have different magical practices, whether it's the ancient Chinese, whether it was across Europe, and you have what's called the planetary squares. Mm. Okay? And the, the planetary squares are quite interesting because, for, for, for instance, each planet is said to have its seal, S-E-A-L. Mm -hmm. I'll describe that in a moment. It's spirit, which is its negative side. Don't let that word fool you. You never call in a planet spirit. Uh, oh. And no, it, that means it's it's, uh, it's it's negative side. And it does also have uh, a positive side to it uh, as well. Uh, and you, you can look these up uh, on the internet, but the main thing that we're going to be talking about is the seal. The seals are immensely important to work with magically. This is you hear people. What Sol I'm sorry, this is heavily derived from Solomon's writings and works, or is this oh, oh, is dated uh, and, even further back? 
oh yeah it goes back to 2500 bc when uh, the emperor in China, the, the the first square to manifest was the Saturn square, uh, what came out on a turtle's back, so the mm -hmm. myth says, uh, uh, on the river uh, Lo Shu, and it's called the Lo Shu Square mm -hmm. uh, on the on the river Lo uh, L O S H U for Lo Shu. Uh, but the the point here is, you hear people saying, "Oh, Mercury's going retrograde," but, but, but everything's going to go. <laughs> but this is where magic comes in. If you get the uh, symbol of the Mercury square, yeah, and, and you draw that out as best as you can, you can use graph paper, it's really simple, and then you draw out its seal, the seal is designed to touch every single corner and number that of importance in that square, and it blocks oh, wow. that energy. So if you if you're having a meeting and you you, are, you don't want the Saturn Mercury retrograde to influence you on that, then you make that and you make the seal and you get the square like that. You place the seal down like that, communicating to Mercury. I'm telling Mercury what you're going to do, and you're using its seal, and that's said to diminish and negate any retrograde effects. Squaring the circle. Yeah. yeah. So, and these are things. These are things that you know the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn probably wouldn't want people to uh, to to know about. They, they all come from mystery <laughs> uh, mystery schools. And yeah. even if you go onto the internet, the Templars. Well, the Templars always used uh, the Mars square, and they mm -hmm. made the sign of the Templar cross fit in that square, and they turned it into the Templar square. But it was mm -hmm. always an originally uh, one of the magic squares of antiquity. Mm -hmm. but these are good little tips that we can help ourselves to go through uh, rough, rough times, for, for example. Super interesting because, uh, yeah, we just uh, just did a conversation the other day with a little bit of the history of the Templars and, um, you know, the banking system and, and the word check and check came from the checkerboard aprons that they were using and obviously the the templar ciphers and the cross it, it's obviously a lot deeper than the surface layer of just Absolutely. the creation of this and um yeah magic squares has been a topic of uh interest of us on the on the uh telegram feed and the rising from the ashes uh, everything in the low shoe um you know it's funny because everything uh, and, and Western esotericism always seems to derive from Eastern esotericism or, or the depths of like Eastern cosmology and, and, and things like even the invention of the compass or the magic square on the back of the turtle or, or, or dowsing and, and using mercury in their, in their burial sites, you know, like, and what is, what is your, cause you said you worked with some Chinese, uh, geomantis. So what is your yes. belief on, on the, on the history of the East and how it might've uh, do you think it was an earlier civilization that was uh, heightened and then taken away, like even a lot of this Tartaria talk that we hear about now that's raving on the Internet? Well, for one, if we look at the writings of a very famous geomancer, the late and great John Michel, he wrote the new view of Atlantis that penned a million books. OK, everybody oh. quotes John Michel. He's, he's like myself. He, he enjoys sacred geometry but he looked into druidry uh through pythagoras and lots of different chronicles written down and uh, pythagoras learned from the druids 
So in, it, sometimes it's not as simple as saying, oh, it all came from one way. You see what I mean? I think, you know, uh, knowledge uh, uh, spread out. So and it, they went as far as uh, Egypt, uh, uh, the Druids, you know, there was a lot of uh, ideas about uh, about that. But when you say Chinese geomancy, yes, I got taught by Chinese geomancy, and I'm going to say what a family said, okay? And you may not, not agree with this. I always say to people, if it resonates, go flow with it. If it doesn't resonate, put it in your delete bin. It's, it's not for you. My uh, One family that, that I worked with, they, they lived in China, but because of political um, agendas, they moved to Hong Kong. Yeah, they've now moved away from Hong Kong. So they, they started to reside in Hong Kong and they, they practice things like feng shui or feng shui. You say tomato, I say tomato. Um, and they, they, they practice this, but they always told me we will never give us all of our secrets away to Western culture. So we think we might know everything about feng shui. Do you see what I mean? Because we've read it through the Chinese book, but they will not give all of their secrets away. Most Taoists tend not to do that anyway, unless they really are aware of their students' progress. So for one, I don't think that the West has been given all of the truth about all of this. Do you see what I mean? I, I, I really do think that the Chans, uh, that's how the, they spoke about it. And I feel that's true. And I also feel that different cultures integrated different ideas as well. So you've got to remember at the time of Stonehenge, you have the ancient Egyptians coming over, you have the Greeks coming over. It was a cosmopolitan place and, and same vice, vice versa. So I will learn from you. You will learn from me. It's not one person or one culture all of the time. I think there was diversity in ancient teachings. I have a ton of Druid questions for you. <clears throat> Andy, you're on mute, by the way, buddy. Got you, brother. Go for it. <laughs> uh, were the Druids making alignments to constellations also, or just solstices and equinoxes? That's a really good question, and one that hasn't really been fully addressed because there's only been a, a few scholars looking into that, one of which comes from Cardiff University, which is in Wales, you know, uh, and they're very proud of that. Uh -huh. So they, they had different constellations. So where the Greeks would say star constellation Corona Borealis, for example, to the Celts, that was Arianrod, the queen of the goddess uh -huh. of reincarnation. Yeah, she had nothing to do with the Greeks, and she had a silver castle at, at the back of the north wind, and she'd see into your soul, and you would either be reincarnated, she would make that decision for you. And so I think that, yes, the Druids were calling in star, star energy, but maybe not to how we've been brought up with our Greek, predominantly a Greek zodiac. Did they actually uh, see the soul to travel through the Milky Way in that channel, like some other cultures do? You think, or is it? Yeah, well, that, that, yes. I mean, you often you often have Orion as being, you know, like Osiris in ancient Egypt, where it's associated with departures, mm -hmm. uh, as it were. To to the Celts, that that was more uh, Ariane rod, 
the, the silver circle in, in in the night in the night sky and she was all powerful she could look right into your into your soul a bit like the the, the egyptians have the weighing of the feather wouldn't they and if you've been really good you'd uh, you'd go to the duat and feel the reeds mm. so okay so if arian rod is in the top in her celestial silver castle and she's in charge of reincarnation does that have anything to do with uh, our soul cycling through the moon? Yeah, I was going to say, sounds like the moon. She is a lunar goddess. You're right. That's that's uh, a really good way way of uh, looking uh, at this because yeah, she is also like lunar goddess as well. Which is you're right. It's very soul orientated, uh, the the moon, so to speak, uh, and certainly so is uh, Ariane Rod. Uh, the, I think the the difference being in the kind of lunar energy is uh, she would uh, look at the heroes, you know, like King Arthur, the magicians like Merlin, and and look into their karma as well. And it was believed, which I think is quite co poetic, to the uh, ancient Celts, is your soul would be reincarnated on a shooting star coming back to Earth. Hmm. Uh -huh. That does correlate, too, with some of the indigenous uh, Native American uh, mound-building cultures and, and some of their path of uh, souls idea. And that's really fascinating because there does seem to be, like, this connection between, like, indigenous Native American beliefs and a lot of, like, druidic beliefs as well. Um, and they're very, nat you know, obviously very natural nature-derived cultures, too, so... That's so fascinating. And we have found some uh, some ancient Celtic like artworks and things in South America and, and some scattered throughout North America as well. What have you found with this connection uh, dating back to the South American and ancient Celtic uh, uh, connection through artwork and, and different uh, different cultural crossover there? For one, it is the the cultural identity worldwide of the mound. I mean, you you get mounds uh, ev everywhere uh, within lots of different uh, cultures, whether that's in Russia, uh, Mexico. I mean, talking about the earthen mounds like you get in Ohio and the Toltec mounds, for example, in Arkansas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I I think there's that. But one one thing I did notice uh, about there. when. I, I went there. Oh, nice. Mounds, Arkansas. Yeah, they, I've been there. They're, they're, they're really great. A, plat a platform uh, mound. It was, uh, they are lovely. Uh, I was in a conference nearby a couple of years ago, 2019. And uh, so you, you have have this, yeah, the, the, the normal days. <laughs> whatever. <they're doing. laughs> um, yeah, so you have the, this. But more than that, when I, I've learned from so many different cultures and, and linked into it. And, and the uh, uh, Hopi elder was saying that, you know, they have emergence points where the peoples came out of the earth and they, they you know, went down straight roads like mm -hmm. a charcoal canyon and elsewhere. And that's what the, the Celts believed in some of their writings recorded by Caesar in one of his books called Dispata, right, talking about uh, ancient Gaul, which is France, the old name for France. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they came out of the ground, the Celts. So we're very uh, earth-orientated to, to some regard. Do you see what I mean? Because we're, we're of the earth. So uh, that's one one tradition with, which links in. But I I think mm -hmm. that 
back back uh, in times gone by, say 12,000 BC or 3,000 BC, there was a global identity culture, and you just called, you had a different yeah. language, so you'd call one god a different name, Mercury, Loki, Thoth, Soth, you know, I mean, it, it goes on and on, Hermes, and, and there was this very similar identity where everybody had this collectiveness about them and now our religions are more diverse and they separate us i think you know back in the day so to speak it was more collective i think that's also a little bit what neil gaiman was uh, alluding to in some of his works uh with like american gods you know talking about how like it's just the, the, just been stripped away from that uh over, over time um, so I have that, recognized. Go ahead. I have recognized a lot of uh, similarities between the Native American cultures and uh, also the Celtic cultures through yeah. uh, Tribe of Dan research that I've been doing, which is kind of where I wanted to get to next. But go ahead and ask your next question. Uh, well, I was just going to say, just yet again, just looking at this, um, <clears throat> the story of. The Celts coming from the ground and then later going back and receding into the ground or the story of the Tuatha de Danan, right, going back into the ground, looking at the story of like the Hopi people talking about these ant people going back into the ground. And, you know, yet again, this theme that comes up, what we talked about last week on our on our live stream, what we're going to be talking about later today of these underworld realms that um, our ancient ancestors believed in and talking about these inner waters that we were talking about earlier. Um, is it this, have we lost the ability to tap into the underworld? Do you think we've always had an association to go into earth to maybe restore mana, to restore spiritual guidance? Or do you think that's just a time uh, a time frame thing that maybe that we are only allowed to or that we want to go to in times of distress here on the surface? Well, the way uh, I see it, just to give uh, a kind of esoteric Dalsim uh, point, point of view. So the ancients look for these spiral patterns uh, emitted by very deep Gaia's water, yin water, as I coined the phrase. And when water has memory, Okay, doesn't it? it holds on to memory? Any homeopath will, will tell you that, as you probably know. So when we go to these ancient sites, we can tap into the Akashic record of place. It's 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 a wonderful thing uh, to do. And just to uh, I don't know if I, I mentioned it in the the Moon Mystery show, but I mean I've got a, a take as well on the two half a day Danan uh, going into the into the mounds as mythology tells us because in my research when I discovered the elongated skulled people of Stonehenge what I, I noticed was they all got placed into mounds they were very short they were the women were about five feet high the men were about sort of five feet four quite quite short and they, uh, you know, they did have a battle uh, for, for Stonehenge. And they, anyway, they ended up in the mounds. And I noticed, uh, which I'm releasing in my forthcoming book, it's out in eight weeks' time, but, for example, that their ear placements were in a different placement to you and I, these elongated skulled people. They had different head dimensions to our head body dimensions. They looked mythical. Now, they all descended into the mounds. They were placed into the mounds. So I think some of the fae that are 
remembering these fae-like people. I've got a whole chapter on, and I'm using reports from Oxford. Okay, I've got a list of the report. If you want to see that these people <laughs> had different ear placements, well, you you go read the boring articles that uh, I, I plowed through in uh, in crazy lockdown. You 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 go and do that, uh, and and you you can you can find out for for yourself. I want to empower people to get the repressed history of our land. You know, I I really do, but I think that part of that myth is remembering a culture that actually was like them. Mm -hmm. That is so cool. What is the name of your new book coming out in four weeks' the time? Secret History of Stonehenge. <laughs> oh, everybody, get on that waiting list. That is going to be fantastic. Are you familiar with the uh, Durrington Walls, a place uh, near Stonehenge where the people were said to have lived? That was about uh, so far away, I think. Uh, yeah, a mile and a half away. A mile and a half away, 5,000-year-old monument. Now, is that one of the places where the elongated skulls were found, buried ceremonially? They were found all around Stonehenge, yes. Durrington Walls is a bit later than the elongated skulled people. Okay. So just to put you on an orthodox timeline, that the Neolithic came before Durrington Walls. Okay, that was about 2500 BC, uh, investigated a lot by Professor Mike Parker Pearson of the Riverside Project. So the, they're earlier people, and then you had Bronze Age people that built uh, Darrington Walls. But Darrington Walls is a superhenge. It was massive, and it was where uh, the people would live in standard-sized houses as well, and they had massive timber circles that were placed inside Durrington Walls. The thing about a ceremonial landscape, whether it's the Giza Plateau in Egypt or Stonehenge or wherever you are in the world, even in ancient America, you don't get one monument by itself. It's part of a huge ceremonial landscape. And Durrington Walls, Woodhenge, which is by it, I love Woodhenge uh, in Illinois. That's a very uh, healing place. It's been restored really nicely with red cedar uh, poles. I don't know if you've been there. I'd recommend any listener in America go there. Mm -hmm. And we had a Woodhenge over here Say the name well. again. Woodhenge. In, in, in uh, Illinois. Oh, wow. Not far from Cahokia? Um, mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, so, and, uh, around the St. Louis area, uh, Cahokia. Cahokia is. Uh, so, yeah, so they had, again, similar monuments. We were discussing mm -hmm. earlier what's a similar monument. Well, hey, you've got Illinois, you've got Stonehenge, Durrington Malls that... Uh, that's just been uh, mentioned. <laughs> well, they mirror one each one one another, and, and the monuments across America do mirror a lot of the, the the Celtic monuments here for sure. That's so cool. That is, it's there's a bigger, 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 bigger story here to be played, and you know, with these types of conversations and your work specifically, and and other works and authors like you, we can we can. Bring this back. It's not that far out of reach to to waken everybody up and shake the sheets and say, let us let us venerate the ancient ways of our earth and our true mission here and our, our true purpose to get everybody back in line and to pay the true proper respects on our mission and, and get out of the get out of the, you know, the other magic square that, you know, they call the matrix right of the system that we've been trapped in. Um, you know, been coded over like to go into these ancient sites. Like it's so amazing. There are so many places here in America that 
people need to go and discover and have great places and all, all these things. Anyways, I digress. Dan was about to say something. You're amazing, Maria. Thank you so much for all the things. Just want to say that. Okay, anyway, well, that's very nice of you to say. Uh, so. <laughs> we, we're, we're starting to get into uh, the Tua de Danin, and um, there's a connection between the Tua and uh, the Duat uh, by uh, Gerald Massey describes this in his book. And um, if you break down to a day, Dan, in, it, it, it is almost like uh, the gods go in the ground in the daytime and come out at night. Oh. Is, there any, uh, is there any connection to maybe the two a day going into the ground during the day, maybe from the sun and then coming out at night and <gasps> living in the forest and doing the rituals? That's, that's really good. And, it, and some of the early monuments, the Neolithic, I was saying, they're, they're, they're really early. Just put, put that in a nutshell. The, the earliest monuments were lunar to be looked at at night. Now, when you look at Stonehenge and you have the world-famous heel stone, uh, before the Stonehenge that you're familiar with, there was a massive stone circle of 56 blue stones going around in a circle, okay, with the heel stone. Now, today, we know Stonehenge as being all trilithons, and it's the Stonehenge that we recognise. That's phase two. Phase one, big stone circle, 56 blue stones uh, that were transported 180 miles away from uh, Wales. Well, the moon arises perfectly at its midpoint in the moon's platonic cycle i'll explain that uh, in a moment above the heel stone to the exact degree now when it came to the bronze age they moved the avenue and tinkered with the monuments they were going to build the massive stonehenge uh, the, that we know and so it's one degree out the midsummer sunrise at stonehenge it was meant to be a lunar monument and when you're at the center of stonehenge phase one and it was around the winter solstice, there was a full moon rising above the heel stone, uh, then it would be blood red. So Stonehenge phase one was a nighttime temple. It wasn't meant to be in the day. That, that wow. came later. Do you see what I mean? Now, okay, I'm going to take you to another site now, Dan. I'm going to take to uh, A3 Henge, the world's largest stone circle. And excuse the plan, yeah. but I'm a stone's throw away from this. My last <laughs> circle. Okay. And the largest in the world. But the first phase of it, called the Cove Stones, it's the heaviest megalith in the British Isles. It weighs over 100 tons. It's a grandmother-shaped stone. Because wow. over here, if you have a stone this shape, like a column, we call that a phallic stone. It's very phallic-like. And if you have a diamond-shaped stone, that's called a, a female yin stone. Uh, and so the first phase of A3, the cove stones, are aligned perfectly to the moon's most northerly moonrise. That only happens once 80, every 18.61 years. That was meant to be witnessed at night. So there are a lot of these phase one for early stone settings were were lunar and were for for nighttime ceremonies not for the day in fact if you look to dispatter again which was written by uh caesar he says the celts day started in the evening at sunset that's where we get the phrase yeah. eve christmas eve from midsummer's eve from it's the start of the day and the end of the day is dawn which the other way around for us we say the start of the day is sunrise yeah. but in other times uh it wasn't so that is implying 
for for what you're saying is it resonates and is in harmony with that very complicated lunar cycle and it is complicated to figure out and that just goes to show the flip from the 13 to the 12 on on the calendar um the the switch from a lunar worship veneration to a solar veneration right and that complete flip-flop switch you know what else is interesting about talking about these associations of the lunar stones and these calendaric stones and these ritual places very spiritual places talking again about these waters, these inner earth waters, and the connection between moon and the tide. And I'm wondering what the connection is if the waters would rise, because Dan brought up earlier that the Twatha Day of Dinan might come out at night, or these these earthen energies, these gods, maybe do their, their workings at night. Does that have to do with these waters maybe coming closer to the surface from the moon controlling the waters on the inside, the tides? The, the tidal the, waves on the inside of waters. The earth uh, surface water is influenced by the moon uh, and high tides and things like that. But the inner waters is six days after a new or full moon. Yeah, they're not influenced by the, the high tides. So they have a different cycle. Do you see what I mean? To yes. the above world. Uh, and, and that's and, and also when you, you have, you know, normal groundwater, that's water that's falling from the from the sky. You do have a fluctuating water table. If there's more rain, the, the waters uh, get higher. Uh, so. So, yes. But also just to to go back to, you know, the reverence of night, I, I think it's worth mentioning uh, here, if I may, that you have very powerful um, female earth currents. Imagine like a river, a surface river. Now imagine that as earth energy, okay, flowing through the lands and, and going mm. all around the world. Uh, then these are influenced by the moon more so. So they become a little bit more active around the the, the cycle of, of the moon, for, for example, whereas more masculine earth currents, they're more of the eightfold year. They're, you know, we're coming up to the spring equinox, so male earth currents are going to rise in, in power at that time. So, you know, the, the female earth currents, especially so uh, to, to the moon. Uh, and in, in in my understanding of magical practice, and I, I think this is quite poignant because in the in some New Age magical traditions, which I'm going to challenge their model here, uh, burn me later after the show, <laughs> um, is that uh, they will look at, you know, the time of the full moon. And let's say for argument's sake, it's 10 past one in the morning, just as an analogy. Then they start their ritual at, at one ten. We have a bang on the full moon here. Wow, that's, that's pretty clever. But in some magical practices, that's the time when it's decreasing. If, if, if something reaches its climax, one ten, do you see what I mean? Bang, in the moment, it's decreasing. Do you see what I mean? Because it's reached its climax. It can't go any higher anymore. It's going to be descending. So some witches and magical practices go, okay, it's 10 past one, is it? We're going to start at quarter to one, and we're going to reach just before its climax. Do you see what I mean? Then you're in the waxing power of it, just yes. before the moment when it starts to weaken. And that's where riding I feel a, a lot of... Yeah, it's, it's riding a wave. And anything that reaches its climax, it's over. Isn't it? Uh, that's that's how some magical... Like I say to your listeners and to you, 
take on what people say, what feels right for your part in your journey, you know? Uh, and what yeah. doesn't, like I said earlier, what doesn't feel right, well, we'll put it in, put it in a delete bin. It's, uh, it's as simple as that. Uh, see <laughs> your heart for the truth. Yeah. I have a question. So uh, I have... Go oh, ahead. go ahead. You first, brother. Go ahead. Let's I was going to... I was I was going to go along with the idea of the uh, the tribe of Dan um, being somewhat nocturnal. Ah. I know that the Formorians were said to have been nocturnal, but unlike oh, the uh, tribe of Dan who came from the ground, the Formorians were said to have come from the sea, uh, which is interesting to me. Um, do you have any idea of whether there are like merfolk myths amongst the Celts, and like were there absolutely besides the Formorians or? Yeah, if you imagine that in, in Celtic magic, you have the four elements, okay? The fire are called salamanders. Uh, water is the undines or the ondines, O-N-D-I-N-E-S, or U-N is sometimes spelled undines or um, ondines. Oh, yeah. yeah, and then you, you have the gnomes for the element earth and sylphs for the element of air. But the, the idea is, so the mer people would come under the uh, undines. Do you see what I mean? That's that's their realm. That's their, their watery realm, and that equates to the West, for, for example. But the, the idea in Celtic magic is there's no point calling in the undines if I'm an emotional mess at that moment in time. They'll have a merry dance around me. So again, it's a bit like what I was saying about, you know, being in your power. To call in the undines, you need emotional, some emotional stability. Mm -hmm. Do you see what I mean? To work to work with them. But that's not to say they wouldn't help you if you were emotionally distressed. Uh, and their quadrant is the west, air is the east, fire is the south, and uh, gnomes are of the north of earth. So we see them as being the elemental beings. And in Celtic magic, you have three circles. Just imagine you've got three concentric circles where we live in that central circle. It's the corporal, you know, 3D realm, whatever you want to call it. The fae, the elementals, the, the you know, those magical beings, they live in the next realm of circle. And then the, the final uh, realm is the realm of the gods. So we have three concentric uh, circles, so so to speak, but they're like called this. the Middle yeah. Kingdom. The 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 realms of the Undines and those they're from the Middle Kingdom because they're in the middle circle, and that's where Tolkien got the idea from. You know, with uh, some of his writings and magical books. Yes. Wow. I I, I feel like that that Atlantis circle. Uh, whole world for one it represents a caste system of mm. of power and for two it also represents um the celestial world too of the zodiac and the constellations and whatnot and us being the center of that uh it's another th three ringed uh disc circle um so i have a kind of a controversial view of the tribe of dan and um, how do I say? Uh, I think that the Hebrews uh, might have came from um, Ireland, which uh, to me was Hiberia or Hyperborea. 
and the the idea that uh, the the North and the Isles were part of Atlantis, and so from the biblical perspective, they obviously come from the Middle East, uh, but then we have like the Druids, and we have this same sort of name, Tribe of Dan, Tua de Danon, and you, you can see uh, where they went all over the place. And I know there's a lot of places all over Ireland with Dan or Don and the name. And so I'm curious is if, if you think that these Druids came before uh, the biblical times or if everything can just kind of came together or uh, and if we could get into like the cores, the COR, the the schools and the like the Hogwarts universities basically that were all over the place. Does that play a part in like this connection to all of these different things in the study of the secret sciences and stuff at like these universities or colleges or institutes, whatever you want to call them that were around the world? Because like you were saying earlier, there's some, some diversity and they are all learning from each other. So is does these, how big of a part does these schools play into this overall knowledge of the esoteric world uh, that they were trying to keep hidden from the people that weren't um, adepts. Yes, I mean, I think, you know, uh, one of the problems of archaeology is they like to pigeonhole everything. So the Celts were from 750 BC to 43 AD. The Bronze Age was from 2500, yeah. etc. So, but I think it's an inherited tradition that goes all the way back to the first people, the Neolithic. Do you see what I mean? I don't think it suddenly started Celticism in England in 750 BC. I, I think it's constantly been inherited. Why? Because if you go back to one of the most ancient monuments in Ireland, uh, on the Hill of Tara, it's called the Mound of Hostages by the Stone of Destiny, then that aligns to the Sun Festival of Imbolc that the Celts celebrated. Well, they knew about that in, <laughs> in the Neolithic thousands of years before the so-called Celts, okay? So I, I think it goes way, 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 way back. And, and when you start looking, for example, at, you know, the early lunar observations, then that goes back to the Mesolithic period uh, where they were looking at, you know, dark moon, new moon. Uh, so it goes way, way back uh, in, in our heritage. So I don't think that, that the Celts were suddenly one people at one time. I, I think they were a gradual, they were passing down knowledge of the lays, of their histories, of everything. And then it became solidified with the Celtic culture but it certainly wasn't uh -huh. born of it. That's that's how I see it. So we can go right the way back to the beginning of uh, of our culture. And when it comes to the education system, uh, the cores, for for example, uh, C O R S, then it was again recorded by Caesar. Uh, he 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 recorded everything because basically he won England and he started thought he you know he was clever and he'd be writing down about how barbaric they uh, really were. We weren't barbaric uh, at all. That was you know a victor's uh, interpretation. But one thing he did say is that there were hundreds and thousands of people studying in because and they would come from all over the known world so again you're not talking about brits teaching brits you're talking about international 
study centers, as indeed there would have been in ancient Egypt. And just like students today could come over from America to study at Oxford, that I think was was happening then. I don't think it's a new concept, our education system. And, and certainly they would learn for three years minimum and then go to nine years. And that's uh, a master's degree. That's where you get it from, learning for three master's years. Master's degree. Years. Yeah, it's, wow. it's from Druidry because they learned for three years and then they yeah. did a doctrine, a doctor and PhD. And that was not that was a total of nine years. And then you could say that you were a Druid. I'm sure if a Druid was around the corner now and said, Maria Wheatley, you're calling yourself a Druid where you should have been doing all, all of this. I'm sure that they're, nah. they're saying that. <laughs> Uh, to me over my shoulder because I do think you know we we have lost uh, a lot all of the ancient counties in Great Britain come from that era and that's why we have a massive county called York it's much much bigger than the county you we call them counties you call them states yeah uh, just to put it into uh, perspective uh, and uh, the the Druids would have three arch Druids in in the land one at York uh, one uh, at uh, Carlinion, and and some say uh, at Oxford. And uh, I may have mentioned before, Oxford was a core. Long, long before Oxford University, it was, it was a core of the, the, the ancient uh, Druids. And also they were very much into singing and sound. Mm. And there was uh, one recording from the, the Welsh Chronicle by I.O. McGonwey, who some say was fraudulent and others say was a scholar, the, the jury's out there, but he said there would be the perpetual choirs where you'd have constantly thousands of people singing the praise of the gods mm -hmm. uh, every hour of the day. I, yeah, uh, I've, I was lucky enough to speak with um, a professor of uh, RKO Acoustics and they did, they've done deep 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 research on all these ancient sites and how they specifically were built for reverberation for delay for acoustic meanings and so <clears throat> i'm that's i'm wondering if there was um, <clears throat> a connection between the sound and being able to tap into this underworld or like the underworld could be not even necessarily like a physical place that you like enter the underneath the earth but maybe just underneath that veil that's here like under the veil of right here and sound and meditation going into the deeper depth of just the current like if you were to go under the surface ground level of your vision and reach the other side like that classic manly p hall uh um it's not his art but he puts it in, in secret teachings of all ages like lifting through the veil um, through sound and through these these different earth ley lines and magnetics and things like that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I'm not going to talk about it now because that's for, for my, my my book coming out and I don't want to, you know, steal my own thunder and everybody else steal my own thunder. <laughs> uh, ha, ha. Uh, but what, what are my studies have been in the music of the earth? Pythagoras and Kepler said that they discovered the music of the spheres. Well, I think I've got the equivalent with Earth energies. I can tell you what harmonic they're in there. So, so for yeah. example, uh, what what I suggest was going on uh, more than just the acoustic reverberation properties of of temples. So, if you walk in a particular manner around a temple and you're in a particular pitch note, uh, as it were, you're in resonance with uh, the main uh, dominant energies there. You become one. 
Uh, so I don't think when when people Hence go to labyrinth. an ancient, yeah, uh, it could be it could be a particular manner on a particular uh, day, uh, depending on what the currents are that prevail, whether they're female, male. You you know you have a look at it, but uh, but I think it's about becoming one with the site. We tend to go to a site, and then we're separated from it. There's the stone. I'm touching the stone. Do you see what I mean? I, I'm here. I'm I'm doing that rather than really blending uh, with it. And I think that's where musical harmonics emitted by the earth can take us to to another dimension within that site. Yeah, depending on the note and depending on what is is prevailing there, so that you can then go away uh, knowing about that particular note. Because I mean, not all of the sites are the same. That's the magic of the stone circles across Europe. They're you know, they're all individual. Whether you go to Sardinia or whether you go to France, they they have their own notes. They have their own persona and spirit of place. To go back to the very beginning of the conversation, talking about these forty nine different earth energies, what? Do are they come? Are they are they grouped together? Um, maybe in like quarter or something like that. Where, or no? What 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 are bad earth energies? And what's something to look out for? And what what describes as an earth energy as maybe being negative or um, maybe not the most mm. beneficial? Yeah, we we tend to call that geopathic stress zones. Okay, so a geopathic stress zone is basically, in a nutshell, toxic earth radiation. And, and toxic earth radiation in its most identifiable identification of it is, is actually quite simple. It's underground groundwater. That's not the deep water. That's water that's fallen from the sky, fills up the underground streams and rivers. That's called groundwater water and it's not the water that's uh, the geopathic stress it's the hertzian frequency it's emitting so the water's not a problem i mean we need water to drink round water is good but when it moves through the, the rock and it's given off a signal that's called geopathic stress and the the biggest survey of geopathic stress was done by Dr. Kathy Batchelor in the 70s and, and later on in the 80s. And she's, she's written a, a seminal book. Uh, she investigated 11,000 homes with doctors, physicians. And she came to the conclusion that if you sleep above uh, geopathic stress zones, i.e. underground water or the curry net or the curry grid, as it's called, that was discovered by Manfred Curry in the 1950s, and you're at the crossing point of that particular grid, then that is chronic geopathic stress. And whatever you're prone to in your DNA fault, would be that heart attack, arthritis, or whatever, then that will come out. Now, if you're at the crossing point of two positive lines, making a, a crossing point, then you'll be prone, unfortunately, to uh, cancer and tumours. And if you're on the neg two negative lines, then that's more like inflammations, arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, that, that type of thing, all discovered by Dr. Kathy Batchelor. And, and she went on to then say, even if you're placed at a desk at a school on these lines, you're not going to learn that well. 
then the, the, the physicians that looked into this realized it was the absorption of your gut, your, your stomach, that can't absorb the minerals properly. Uh, so you could be on the best organic diet. Uh, uh, but if, you, if you're going back to sleep above geopathic stress zones, your body takes a long time to self-heal. You could be having acupuncture. You could be having anything. Your body does not self-heal above these chronic geopathic stress points. And the other type is a lay. You don't want to be living above uh, a lay. Don't let the new age community fool you uh, uh, into thinking that's good because chi travels too fast along a straight line. And I say to all of uh, my students, that's why the Chinese have bowed roofs because the chi must slow down. And if it goes along a straight line, it's called sha chi, poison arrow. And so lays travel a lot with energy. Great if you need to recuperate. Oh, I need some energy today. I think I'll go to a lay. Oof, you'll get a bit of energy. That's good. But to live above it, the ancients never lived above these earth energies. They'd go to them and come away. No, nobody lived at Stonehenge. They lived at Durrington Walls. Uh, no, nobody lived at Avebury. They lived at a settlement two miles away. You know, uh, so it's it's about going to these ancient sites and coming away. Too much of a good thing. We have a saying at Avery, the light oh. can sometimes shine too bright. And so we notice that the people that live there go away for a little while. Do you see what I mean? The light is shining too bright. You're being blinded now. You you can't you can't see the wood for, for the trees. So it's about going to these places, interacting with the energies and coming away and looking to where... Uh, cats sleep uh, in your home. They're, they always in, they love geopathic stress, but not to be fussed. You know, cats love to come over to you. It's where they go by themselves. Dogs, on the other hand, detest geopathic stress. Interesting. If they won't go into a room, if they feel uncomfortable, if they get restless and want to keep going in the hall, that room has probably got uh, geopathic stress. What do you think about the concept of ghosts or spirits being stuck on Earth, dying in an area where there's more geopathic stress, maybe trapping their energy here? Or is there something along those lines in the esoteric wisdom that tells us that where you die significantly increases or decreases your chance of being able to actually leave and, and to not be energetically stuck here? Absolutely. I mean, two things, really. The Chinese geomancers paid more attention to where you were going to be buried than where you would live because it's a dynasty. Yeah, it's a wow. dynasty. And I'll describe that in a moment. So did the Ottoman yeah. Empire. So do the Masons. Okay. But anyway, I'll come to that uh, in a moment. That's what the, the, the Chinese uh, uh, geomants uh, said. But the, but the main thing about what you're saying about ghosts and water, water will hold on to that memory, the groundwater. And it was the amazing master dowser called Tom Lethbridge, who was a Cambridge archaeologist, uh, incidentally, and he got into dowsing and, and discovered many lost monuments. Uh, but he looked into the ghosts, uh, and they're quite often uh, in England, I can speak of, this is his research, he said that around misty conditions, uh, when there's moisture uh, in the air, or you've got underground water, it memorizes like a tape recorder, and you'll see that image, and it becomes quite stuck. Uh, that memory is embedded, in other words, the energy is embedded. But the, the Chinese, going back to the, the Chinese ge geomancers, 
if you went to Westminster Abbey, the king is going to be coron coron you know, have his coronation there on uh, May, May the 6th. They look for an energy pattern that has a circle and a circle and a circle and a circle. You can imagine like wrapping around coils, it's called the coil of the dragon. Uh, and so the Chinese would say, oh, if we get buried on the coil of the dragon, you get released fast. Karma is diminished. This would mean you, you have a better chance in whatever your afterlife is going to be. Yeah. Uh, and so they would look for these, these energy patterns and whether that's, um, you know, past kings and queens of Westminster Abbey. I mean, Guy Underwood in one of his books wrote, uh, uh, it was all geospirals. He realized that was wrong and then it was the coil of the dragon. He was a pioneer, master down, so I inherited his works. So, for example, if, uh, if you do what the royalty do, if you do what the Ottoman Empire did, and if you found those energy patterns, then you have a better karmic release uh, to go into the afterlife. And it's interesting to know that when I've doused the Valley of the Kings, obviously very famous for, you know, Tutankhamun, King Tut, Ramesses the Great, uh, etc. There are quite a few of them are on the, the coil of the dragon. It's it's a worldwide uh symbol that is recognized. Um on on that topic there, I'm just curious because it made me think of this is is there something uh, the dragon symbolism with the with the coil uh and then the symbolism of the dragon losing its legs did these and becoming the serpent did uh these kind of spirals were they able to, was the energy able to walk or were they walking around the spiral uh and then seemingly we we lost that idea and now now that it drags on instead yeah, of I mean, it, it, it's walks like, around. Like, yeah, so some of some of the the earth, it's like a kind of coil going around like that, and then it will loop over like that. That's that's a coil of uh of the of the dragon, and it's a place of ease. So if if your if your soul uh, wants to go to wherever it is your soul is going to go, you know, uh, it's with ease. With the coil of the dragon, uh, and let's say you're with uh, you're buried on geopathic stress zones, then that's not ease. You see what I mean? So they looked very carefully to where they were going to be buried, uh, so that you you have a good journey to to the afterlife. That's the kind of idea uh, behind it, so to speak. And that's why there's no change with how an emperor's buried in China to how Henry VII was interned into Westminster Abbey and Queenie, um, sorry, and, and Queen Elizabeth uh, I, probably. Wow. Uh -huh. and, and especially, you know, uh, moneyed people. Moneyed people, uh, masons and things, they're great designers. They designed a lot of the stately homes over here, the big mansions, uh, the, the, the elite uh, moneyed people that you probably know names of. I'm not going to name them, never do. <laughs> uh, but we but we get the picture. They uh, design it on the uh, how you design an ancient site. At an ancient site, you walk to the esoteric center around the circle. 
most people that go to an ancient site go, oh, I've got to get to the centre. Boom, feet of centre and off they go. But you should go round a site towards uh, the centre. So what, what the, the Masons designed their stately homes is you go down a long drive. There's a big circular object in the middle. You go round the object, just like you would round an ancient site. It's called the esoteric center and to the celts the esoteric center was where the soul or the genie of place resides so it's very important to to look for these concepts and that's what they were doing uh, across moneyed europe and still do you are channeling in on um <clears throat> some sort of heart chakra line to blow people's minds because you have this some just this blood. <laughs> it's just always constantly mind blown. Because back to the dragon lines and the dragon earth energies, you know, and and how that can contain us here. It's just like I need a map. We need to start mapping these places out. How big are the geopathic stress? I'm I'm going. Sorry, I'm going back a little bit. But these yeah, geopathic yeah. stress areas are they like fine areas? Are they are they bigger parts? And can they be oh. created? Uh, well, the curry grid, for example, if you imagine a fishnet over Gaia, uh, over the Earth, she's uh, a sphere shape. She bulges at the equators, doesn't she? She's like a tangerine shape. So the curry net is going to be tight at the poles and bigger at the equators. But roughly speaking, in most of North America and, and most of Northwest Europe, uh, the grid is going to be 3.5 metres by 3.5 metres. That's what Dr. Kathy Batchelor recorded. Uh, but the real chronic geopathic stress points on that grid are actually having seven meters. And it was my late father that was one of the first British people to write about the Curry grid and the publisher at the time, Harpers and Collins, uh, they decided that they didn't want every other, every seven meters, they keep it nice and neat and say every 3.5 meters. So all over the net, they mm. plagiarized his work mm -hmm. and it's wrong. And I, I tell, you know, all of the Downson societies, if you go to the first writings that he did or Kathy Bachelors, they're not saying that. The editor said that. But say something enough times on the internet and it becomes a, a, a truth. So you can burn me later yeah. again for that one. You need two matches now. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, so we, we, we can look for that. But again, you know, if you're sensitive and you guys seem a sensitive bunch, and I'm sure your listeners are a sensitive uh, bunch, and you go into a room, just have a couple of deep breaths, uh, and, you know, you walk around the room. That's what the ancient Chinese geomants did and modern geomants are like. And then you feel, for, does that feel okay? Does that feel okay? Do you see what I mean? Or I can give you a really quick way of finding the best place for, for your bed. Uh, in the house you stand in the this is dr kathy bachelor i never take credit for something that isn't my own work i don't think people should do that a lot do but you stand in the door and you simply say to an l rod you know like a metal l rod you can get them on the internet or really nice ones from maria um and you you hold uh your your rod like that you just say to the rod show me the best position for uh show me the best position for my house in this room to sleep and then it will point like that so you're just asking the rod to show you the best place for your health to sleep above in that room and it will go like that and follow the rod and when it moves to your word to, towards you or away from you that's a yes or if you're using two rods it's a little bit more difficult because you want to get the direction 
practice you like that so you use uh one more and dr kathy bachelor said that you know it's really oh i've as Dolores Cannon once uh, told me, she did a, a copy of my book, The Essential Dowson Guide to Sell in America, and she uh, she said, bend coat hangers. And Dolores is right. You could go upstairs, bend a, a metal coat hanger into an L shape and use that. I mean, you, you don't have to buy uh, rods. You can make your own. How much do you sell your L rods for? You said you make some L rods. Do you, you distribute them? Yes, uh, there. I think, if my memory serves me correct, they're forty-eight pounds. But I like copper-based ones because mm. copper comes under Venus, the goddess. Copper is a really good conductor, so it picks up on Earth energies faster. I don't like brass rods. I don't like aluminium uh, rods uh, because you know you're dousing Earth energy, so you may as well use a goddess material. You see what I mean? That's so why I don't use steel, steel, copper, steel rods, iron rods. Uh, you know, they're, they're quite popular, but they're not uh, in the symbolism of, you know, Aphrodite and Venus, uh, who all revered uh, copper. So that's that's why you use copper, uh, but it is highly conductive. So you, you can pick up on energies really quick. It makes a copper rod twitch really quickly like that, where I think it takes a little bit longer for aluminium or brass to catch up. And then it, I've demonstrated this actually in groups. Is a compass essentially a dowsing rod? A compass? Uh, I, I don't know what you mean. What, what, uh, do you mean mm. like a normal compass is a, dow a dowsing rod? Like the concept of a compass to find this magnetic north, do you think is like an ultimate dowsing rod? Oh, uh to some regard, but but I think you know dow a dowsing rod picks up on energy not just a location because these so, ancient uh navigators you know they would have you know you'd have your navigation team but then you would also they say they would have like their team of dowsers for when they at least got to the land you know they would find out where you're going to set up camp and how dowsers are basically in history you know the essential part of finding and discovering and and tuning in and knowing where to set up and where to set group and where to do prayers and things like that and so i was just i just had that thought i was like oh snap it seems like uh because mm -hmm. the credit for the first compass comes from ancient china they're like the first you know they created the first compass in like 2000 bc and i just like this it just reminds me of this this look for this sacred center or this magnetic north or to find these four rivers that meet the conjunction, this ultimate like tool, like a, almost like a compass as a divination tool or something. Um, but I wanted to ask another question. My, my neighbor's mowing the lawn. Uh, so I'm going to mute myself. Is that what's going on? Yeah. Sounds like you're summoning demons. Hey, uh, <laughs> well, okay. No, here's the, two questions. Uh, so you were just talking about, uh, symbolism of copper and 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 um to the goddess do you think the copper age itself was not necessarily like this uh paleolithic caveman time but maybe a time when it was more of a matriarchal society and they were actually uh you know they call it copper age because it might have been symbolically more homage to venus and these um these goddesses in a matriarchal time Oh, for sure. I mean, the, the solar veneration and the more masculine uh, culture uh, across Europe 
came in around 2500 BC. That's when everything changed from the, the lunar and the communal way of burial. You see across uh, Northwest Europe uh, and, and beyond, you, uh, in the Neolithic, you go into a long mound with lots of other people. It wasn't your personal grave, it was collective. And, and there was no land division uh, in England then. So it was we, the concept, we own this land. We will die here. We will be interned rather here. Whereas when the uh, Copper Age ended and the Bronze Age was born, uh, like I say, roughly 2500 BC, that's when individual burials occurred. And it started off from way, way, way across Europe as being very large mounds that men were placed into. They were the first uh, burial uh, mounds were, were like that. And then eventually women got uh, buried in them and children. But that's when the ego came in and land division was built. It was I now, this is my mound, my own burial, and I own this land. So that's when kingship was and queenship was was born so i think that's when uh the the demise of the collective came uh, ended in, in the in the neolithic uh actually because we we have ancient county borders that go back to the bronze age we can date them back that far so we know that was in occurrence and they they build big fences and you know plot out land and if you're if you're plotting out land you're saying that's mine and we do that now we have inherited that that Bronze Age system because I have a garden or a backyard, as 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 you chaps say, and that's mine. Uh, and in the Neolithic, it was a we culture. Wow. Yeah, I'm getting some. No, Andy, go ahead. Go ahead, brother. Yeah, um, I was wondering uh, if you're familiar with the the Green Children of Woolpit. And if you have any ideas about whether people lived in the ground or if you just feel like, I know you've mentioned before that souls return in and through the earth um, instead of going up and out as they changed it to in the patriarchy from the original uh, matriarchal views. But did you know about the green children of Woolpit? And what do you think about people living in? Is that ground? the ones where they had the greeny color skin and they, yeah. they were seen that? Yes, yes, I am familiar uh, uh, with that from like, you know, Middle Earth, as it, as it were. Uh, yes. Well, that, that was a, a phenomenal, um, you know, account that happened. Yeah. You know, it, it was, was an account. And, you know, there are so many different, I, I believe, well, we don't know much about the Earth, really. We don't we don't know how you know things are much much deeper in the ground you you could have all sorts of uh, of different uh beings certainly in in the celtic tradition that's uh, that's where beings do reside they do reside there you know uh, and so i i think it's about all of these uh, accounts whether they're, they're the green children that pop up and you know they didn't like the lights did they and there was uh, there was all of that sort of going on it's about remembering our past and re remembering what was in in occurrence and that's where i think ancient sites and deep waters come in when you go to a site connect to the akashic record of the past of place and then that information will slowly come up into your consciousness so we can connect to the past. And I feel because, you know, I've discovered some of what the ancestors look like. It's because you, I can connect to the Akashic memory of place. 
And, and anyone can do that. It's not rocket science. And it's free if you're a free site. Uh, and the, the thing is, you know, when you when you come to some of the real power places, it's a sad reflection of this is being denied by places like Stonehenge having security guards. You can't go into Newgrange, into Ireland without a guide uh, or Noth uh, in, in Ireland. So, you know, we have to claim back our past and we have to, I feel, connect also what i think is magical about the the large henge monuments whether that's avebury or wherever uh, you are the massive ones that could fit thousands of people in stonehenge was actually phase two quite small phase one you could fit thousands in now imagine you're at, at stonehenge during you know the 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 lunar cycle or the the eightfold year and you're with a thousand uh to up to two thousand people and you're all in the same collective mindset yeah that's the power of what ancient sites were like now everybody goes in individually or you go in mm. to small groups and even the groups can become quite classes oh you can't come near me i'm doing my meditation you can't kill this uh, but before i think everybody had that massive collection could you imagine children being taken there for the first time joining oh, in the collective beautiful. of their parents and being switched on like that to the memory of place and to their their destiny alike as well because you can get your soul's divine purpose from uh ancient sites that's the difference i feel because why would you make a place uh, to fit up to a thousand two thousand people these were massive events massive spiritual events like the world has never seen since absolutely i've had uh past life regression experiences back from Mu, or as we refer to it now as Lemuria, but um, they say that that happened around 12,000 years ago in some circles, but I know Doggerland was above ground, is now the mm -hmm. British Channel, uh, and it went, it went under water around 6,500 years ago, um, some say, and uh, also High Brazil was likely in a similar situation uh, long ago, mm -hmm. possibly uh, above the, the water level. But um, I've, yeah. I've, uh, I know there's some people that uh, connect uh, to those lost ancestral traumas, uh, certain songs um, that bring back the, the memory of those times and having uh, lost um, large parts of our culture um, and then having us be reborn with that, that, um, that trauma within us, kind of deep in our hearts. But I know that the song uh, "Old Sang." Are you familiar with that song that we sing on New Year's? "Old Sang." Oh yes, uh, old old lang syne. Yes. Old lang syne. Yeah, they, there's uh, some people connect that song with the lost ancestral trauma of Lemuria, and um, I feel like these ancient sites hold some of those memories and can help us recover our lost uh, ancestral past, both the good and the bad. Yeah, absolutely, and that's what what I think the Akashic record of of any place uh, does, and e and even on a, a much lesser level in your own home, if your own home has underground water, I live in what's called a chalk landscape, and chalk is like a sponge for water, uh, so my my home can have its own Akashic record of place as well. So when I go to do house clearance and things like that, I connect to the memory of the house. 
Do you see what I mean? And I always tell the house and the place what I'm going to be doing. I don't just go in and say, oh, Maria's here with her downstairs. She's going to do some house clearing. And I just walk, walk around. I don't. I, I tell the house. I tell the owners, tell the house a week before I'm coming and ask to be invited. Do you see what I mean? Because otherwise you're intruding on earth. Um, sorry, that's my alarm. You're intruding on earth energies. You're intruding on the memory of place. So I think the more that we work together as a team with ancient sites and even our own homes and landscapes, it's a better relationship and a, and a way forward. Do you see what I mean? Rather than expecting that me to go along and do do that. And I will never clear the house if there's uh, something that doesn't want to leave, I will work with that. Did you see what I mean? I'm not one of these dowsers, and this is why I, do, I disagree with some people that have had no geomantic training and talk about moving earth energies uh, and working with pulling underground water uh, to, towards them and things like that. I never disturb the earth's energy system because I might not like that energy current, but the gnats behind it do. Uh, the, the deer will follow things for the, they love blue energy currents. And if mm. I start moving things, I'm moving a whole ecological system of Gaia. What right have I just because I don't like living in that house because of some energy? Because that line will go out and that's where the animals will gather, like gnats or mosquitoes or uh um, you know, like rats and mice and other things. So you've got to be aware that when you're working with, even with a house, let alone an ancient site, you mustn't disturb that ecosystem. And that's where you have a school of thought, mainly company, present company excluded, that is mostly male dancers that, that take control of it. And that's where I try to show my students, you don't need control. You just need to work with something and then magic happens and then it re really 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 does because you're leaving your ego away and saying i you and you enter like a mythological state of mind to work with all of these beings and energies and uh it's it's a, it's a wonderful magical journey i love that asking the permission of the land or the home uh whether they want you to be there or whether they want you to do work there and uh, make changes, whether it be for better or worse. That's beautiful. I know the Native Americans do that. Um, and when they're taking herbs, they, they ask the, the grandmother plant first, uh, shall I take these herbs or do you want me to, to move on? And that's, that's beautiful, trying to commune with the energy of the environment that you're in and, and ask it those questions. I love that. Yeah, and, and you're not moving the energy lines to, I mean, deer follow, like I say, blue earth currents. And if you move that, you're moving their ancestors' memory because they will follow where their ancestors were. And, uh, you know, and, and other, other beings, even Sasquatch, will be following particular color uh, lines and currents through, through the landscape. I always say work with the earth and then magic happens start dictating to her what to do what she's four billion years old she's gonna she might listen to you for a while and then you'd be like a gnat an irritant uh uh for her the, the way i see it but the beauty is is forming the more you form these relationships with places uh and the spirit of uh place uh the more other places recognize you because water 
is it's it's like a massive being in its own right and water will go to water won't it so a spring will start go to a river and go to sea won't it it joins water so if you go to an akashic record of place be in your power like i mentioned earlier tell the, the deep waters what you're going to do because you'll be introducing yourself to the world's waters you see what I mean? Because water will go to water. And then it does that on the inside of the earth uh, as well. It's as above and so, and so so below. So I always say to, you know, people at Stonehenge, they say, why aren't we going into the circle? They've gone, that group's gone straight in, Maria. Uh, we're going to walk in the way of our ancestors. Mm, you're not yes. ready to go into that sector yet. We, we're going to, we're going to do everything you're seeing everybody else, but we're going to do it in the footsteps of our ancestors. And we're going to do it with a permission because the beautiful thing about ancient sites and the wisdom of our ancestors, they'd always have one point at an ancient site, which today we call the neutral zone. I think it's such a boring term, but anyway, that's what they call it. It's called a neutral zone. <laughs> so that's where you clear your energy field before you go into the ancient site so you don't take your emotional baggage with you, mm. okay? And that's what the, the ancients, their wisdom is, is so, so profound. But the past is close if you know how to approach it in the right way. And mm. a few top tips. And before you know it, your, your energy field is expanding. Once you've cleared your energy field, you're open to what the world's Akashic records are going to be telling you. You're clearer. Do you see what I mean? It's easier. Why make something difficult? That's what I always say. That the ancients did it in a kind of way that makes it easier, not harder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah, individualizing things and like we're living in that epitome of like secret societies and taking this knowledge and making it so singular. Um, you know, it's it, we're we're making our way back, and it's beautiful. Um, but I want to ask you one one question that is important to me to see what we have to say on this and, and anything we could dig up on what our ancient druids, what were they eating? What, what were important foods to them? I can't, I have a hard time finding what are the important foods and herbs because I didn't write anything down as you say. So what, what do we know? Is it, is it nuts? Some of the special trees, or what are the special foods mm. of the Druids? Uh, if you really want to look into that, there was a big analysis done on what's called Lin Lo Man, L-I-N-L-O-W, Lin Lo Man. And he, he was uh, uh, from the Druid community, not necessarily a Druid, but he was from that community. And they analysed what he had been eating and what, you know, the kind of fabrics they were wearing and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and they really did like nuts, and they kind of ground them down, uh, beech nuts and hazelnuts. It tastes kind of like coffee to, uh, to a certain regard. Mm. And they loved nettles. Uh, they loved turnips, root vegetables, uh, burr. Over here we have uh, it's high in carbs, so that would have kept kept them going. And a lot of meat stews. But the cauldrons that have been uh, analyzed for food substances as well, the chiseldern, cauldron hall oh. uh, that that was a massive amount they reckon they could feed like the likes of glastonbury festival today with meat stews vegetable stews and loads and loads of alcohol <laughs> uh, they reckon they could have you know for you know you're talking these were massive like glastonbury festival events with these huge cauldrons of food and alcohol 
But different kinds of alcohol, right? Alcohol is different than uh, what we know it as today. Uh, Fruity beverages. It was described as very fruity. So you'd have things like uh, first type of cider, uh, blackberries, elderflower Mm. is really good. Yeah. Mead, absolutely. You can not, don't forget uh, the mead. We've got so many place names like St. <laughs> Margaret's Mead, where they used to make mead. A meeting. Uh, it's, it's a... <laughs> a meeting of the minds. A meeting, yeah. Um, yeah, we we dug into uh, we dug into the cauldrons of the ancient Tuatha and found out that the ancient Celts was like oh. one of one of the magic items that they brought with them to the surface oh, was wow. the cauldron because it's part of the alchemical process okay. and such an essential chamber of alchemical. Uh, go ahead, sir. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, sorry, I forgot that was uh, where I was leading with the tour de Dan and stuff. And, and that line of questioning with uh, uh, Trevor Dan and what came first. Um, I, I, I found uh, this uh, thing, and uh, it talks about the different uh, uh, sacred uh, objects of the Tuatha Dan and the Spear of Lug, the Stone of Fall, the Sword of Nuada, and the Cauldron of Dagda, and how those actually apply to the to the uh, the wands, the cups the pentacles and the swords of uh, tarot cards. And I thought that was super fascinating, that connection of of how those connect into the tarot, uh, because you see tarot used in in such things as uh, divining uh, information and whatnot. And then uh, that also, uh, there's another part of it where it connects into different tribes. But um, can you elaborate maybe more on if these you think these legendary weapons I, I've uh, got to, I've got to plug in. I've realized my it says my battery's running low. I'm gonna have to get the the lead. Sorry about this. So no, no worries, no worries. Okay. I have a question for Dan. Question. Uh, what was question, the man. cauldron? Yeah, it was a great question. What was the cauldron associated as far as the suits of the tarot? Was that associated the cups. with cups? Okay, cool. Cups. The cup, the yeah, bowl, cups. and the cauldron. The thing in vessel, the the wound. And the spear was the wands. Spear is the wands, the, the stone of fall was the pentacles, uh, the sword of Nuada was the, uh, his swords, yeah. Sword, stone, cup, so you got like the, the bowl or the cauldron being uh, the feminine vulva and the, and the wand being like the masculine phallus type of energy, and then those other two or maybe that the offsprings of that or... You know, it was, I thought it was interesting, she was talking uh, about the druidic school and how you you basically had a three year, but now we're on a four year journey in college. And then yeah. you get your master's after eight years as opposed to nine. So like yeah, looking I think they at had that, to be in threes. Yeah, yeah. three, three, That's three, six, number. nine. Uh so that was that was that was kind of really interesting to me because that just shows again the separation from the maternal to the paternal and that switch of that type of hierarchical. Uh-huh. Three four, the three four. Yeah. Oh, three, yeah. four timing, baby. Let's go. Yeah. I know the, the three rabbits are a symbol Easy. of Ostara. Yes, yes. Oh. When we're, again, this is the festival of, you know, the equinox, and you have uh, Ostara, Germanic uh, goddess. But, yeah, this uh, this is just about kind of uh, char- charging up. Sorry about that. Well, we're on a, we're on a wind good. down, too. Maybe we'll, this yeah. will be like a final yeah. question before I had, uh, we close one- out. I had one last question before uh, before the, 
after this one, though. But uh, so yeah, the 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 legendary weapons of the Tua, uh, Daydan and um, and 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 Taro. Do you think that these legendary weapons or or the cups and the spear, or whatever? Uh, do you think that they were actually real things, or do you think that these were sort of spiritual gifts, and that's why we we see it in the tarot? I think they were both, because to to the to the ancient Celts, the sword was everything. Uh, and before I go, I'm going to show you an Iron Age sword I have yes. worked up for, for a, a ritual. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think they were both because you know, in in ritual, that you would be using the the sword, you know, uh, to for for air. Uh, so so most definitely, uh -huh. and so yes, I think that they were both. But as well, there's a there's a school of thought in some mystery schools where they wear all the four elements as well. So we have uh, our swords, and we have you know the stone of destiny, uh, etc., and the cauldron uh, within us. So to to end on something really nice, I'm going to get you a beautiful replica of a Celtic sword that would have been uh, used by our ancestors. Okay, oh, so yeah. one minute. Yes. Yeah, we all got to start working with cauldrons again, man. Just to, you know, like uh, yeah, I miss, my last, I miss uh, my still. I miss it. I gave it to my mom for her birthday. This wow. is. Uh, they have tended to have this kind of shape here oh. and here, and this would have. It's this isn't, but originally that probably would have been ivory, and then they were in these lovely leather sheaths like this. And the, uh, the sword is like this. Yeah. So they would Whoa. have used them Sick. physically and to cast the circle uh, around as well. And also, like in the Ace of Swords in the tarot, uh, Arthur Edgar Waite has it coming out of the, the ethers, doesn't he, with a hand holding the sword like that. And that's because yeah. the Ace of Swords represents victory because in medieval times, you didn't have someone saying, oh, such and such has won. King Arthur's won the battle. You stand in your saddle with your sword on high. Everyone in the battlefield would have known you're the winner. And so that's why the uh, Ace of Swords represents victory. It's what you would have done uh, in, in battle with uh, with swords. So it's not just uh, Game of Thrones that would go around with swords. Maria <laughs> does. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's a beautiful sword. Uh, yeah, yeah, I have a um, sword collection. Cool, me too. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> uh, okay. I'll take one I more have, question, have... then I'll, then I'm going to have to uh, leave. Uh, it's my birthday weekend. Uh, what? Oh, happy, birthday. Oh, happy birthday. <laughs> birthday. <laughs> it was yesterday, 21. but I'm going out for, for dinner uh, again this evening. It's just the weekend. I thought I'd celebrate the whole weekend. Well, thank yes. you very much for for joining us on on this special weekend too. Because not only is it your birthday, it's it was St. Patrick's Day, and yesterday was Sheila the Gig Day, and uh, so it's uh, very fortunate that we are able to have these uh, deep uh, Celtic uh, conversations on such a weekend. So thank you very much for being with us, Maria. We appreciate it very much. Uh, thank you for your time. And uh, my final question was about uh, St. Patrick. And uh, we were talking about like these serpent energies or the coils and, 
and whatnot. And and one of the St. Patrick kind of legends, uh, he gets swallowed by uh, a goddess named Cora, who is a she turns into a serpent and swallows him. I'm wondering if uh, if you have any like esoteric knowledge behind that story, because seemingly you know a lot of people, some people believe that you know St. Patrick was a good guy and he transformed Ireland. Uh, I believe he was not a good person and he screwed up Ireland and and the kind of uh, the I believe the patriarchy moved into Ireland and got rid of the matriarchy. And uh, yeah. chasing the snakes out of Ireland uh, has to do with the uh, symbolism of chasing out the goddess and getting rid of the worship of the goddess, because uh, seemingly you can associate that serpent energy with goddesses, uh, just like Eve in the Bible. Uh, so I was wondering if you had any more esoteric knowledge that you could uh, leave us with. Well, that, that's a, that's a brilliant interpretation. I I, I agree wholeheartedly uh, with that. In fact, you know, one of the early dragon depictions was Tiamat from you know the Sumerian uh, culture associated with uh, with the goddess. And if you look at Christianity now, not just Saint Patrick, but if you go to a medieval church, uh, I was at one uh, yesterday where Harry Potter was filmed for Hogwarts, his Gloucester <laughs> Cathedral. I was there with my daughter Raven. What what's in around? But the but the 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 thing is, you always see Saint Michael, Saint George, Saint Catherine. They're the dragon slayers, and they always yes. got the sword, uh, you know, pointing towards the serpent, which is a metaphor of the power of Gaia and the power of Earth energies. They're serpentine energies. They're dragon uh, lines. So so you're right. I agree wholeheartedly. Really, from my heart. That's what was happening with St. Uh, Patrick, what he was. He was taking the wisdom of the earth away from the people, putting it to the clergy, because the Irish knew about the fairy lines. The Irish knew about the, the leprechauns and the little people and the people from the Middle Kingdoms. And, and for me uh, and, and for, for you alike, I feel that that was the dominance of the masculine and, you know, that eventually turned upon um, the control aspect of himself. It, it turned uh, full circle uh, as, as it were. Yes, excellent. Thank you so much. Yeah, agreed, agreed. We, we tried to have a, uh, a conversation with ChatGPT to ask it some, uh, we wanted to like have a conversation with this AI to see what it could tell us about uh, St. Patrick. We wanted to go weird with it, but it just would never break that mold of being like, it wouldn't tell us the true dirty, dark depths of the patriarchal takeover <laughs> that St. Patrick really was uh, and taking the power from the people. Um, so we couldn't break the internet on that day, but we wholeheartedly agree. Uh, this is This has been wonderful, Mario. Thank you. Okay. Uh, thank you again. Thank you. I'm looking forward to this new book coming out, and I hope that people uh, will also do the same and uh, and check <laughs> check it out. Yeah, and and please uh, tell everybody where they can find your work. Uh, any websites, any uh, anything sure. else you got going on? Books, where they can find your books at? Uh, all of that. Yeah, esotericcollege.com is my teaching platform where you can take any of my courses to diploma level. I'm fully affiliated with the Association of Distant Learning Colleges here in the UK. Or you can find out about my tours and my kind of like sacred site workshops at the Avebury Experience 
www.eastoetcollege.co.uk. But my main platform is eastoetcollege.com, where I, I do I love uh, teaching people in small groups, Zooms, one to ones or in any way that, you know, we can make it work. So, yes, and uh, thank you for asking some wonderful questions. I know that I've been in good company uh, here this evening. You, you, like I said earlier, you're all knowledgeable in, in your own right, and you come from right. uh, a slightly different angle as well, which is informative for the listener and a pleasure to answer. Thank wonderful. you so much for that. And you have a Appreciate wonderful, you. happy birthday weekend and and happy equinox as well mm, yeah I, i'm yeah. taking my my little chalice to have my wine at the local pub so they find it hilarious <laughs> so it's a full moon on tuesday also Ah, uh, yeah that's a, another another excuse to to go out to avery henge and uh and, and these people Oh, uh, not that I need any excuse. <laughs> okay, then, guys, you've been good company. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to love you right. and leave you, and you take care. And thank, thank you. you for this evening. Aloha. Thank you. Safe travels. And <clears throat> what's, up? what's up, everybody? We hope you love, 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 love that interview with Maria Wheatley. Uh, it was a pleasure, an honor to talk to her. And uh, there's, uh, I thought the conversation was fascinating. Uh, we went deep, so deep into that the was earth. An automatic RFTA oh, classic, in my opinion. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, after hearing, after hearing her on the Moon Mysteries with uh, you and Kaylee Roman, I was like, oh my god, we have to talk to this lady. Um, and I had actually wanted to talk to her before that. I uh, even heard her on on the show with you guys uh so it was great to get into a little bit more deeper of like the earth and energies and the two a day damn and kind of uh get into that ask those aspects a little bit more um she's a very lovely person to talk to uh absolutely i loved uh, her talk about the magic and how she's she was taught under dolores cannon that was really cool to hear about and uh it's no surprise with all of the wisdom that she carries um being able to uh yeah. with all that wisdom about house magic and clearing energy from the home uh especially the energy from uh, working with the earth and working with the waterways and it's just fascinating you don't really hear too much about people talking about the inner groundwater versus the aquifers and the riverways being a different type of water that's in fact She's undoubtedly an actual master dowser. Um, and you might, you know, read or hear these things. Uh, you know, we've talked to a few different dowsers on the show. We talked to Marty Kane, um, and we talked to um Peter Shampoo. Um, and I believe one of the one of the guests that we've had on is, has been a dowser. But Maria, um on she she did dude, she just cha- she's channeling in on some shit. She's also been researching and writing these books for quite some time but just like everything that we asked was just like boom i i was like a little bit like she was cracking my egg like each little time i was just like man like just home hidden man it was great that was a great conversation still absorbing it all uh and the and the druidic uh connection to the tarot and the 12th day denon that was also a really great thread bro 
um, something really cool on that. That we're, that's something we're gonna have to go into on another lo- uh, slow burn or something. For Absolutely. sure, for sure. I want to learn about the undying. Yeah, like, Interesting the breakdown of the elements with the different uh, fey. Yeah, you know, that's I haven't. I've I've been fascinated by that too for for a long time, and I originally read about it. Manly P. Hall writes about it, and then there's one other significant writing I found on it, but there's really not like a t- one cohesive piece of just like really big breakdown that's not so because you know how Manly P. Hall kind of writes is like slightly cypheric, right? Like slightly uh Twilight language or whatever. But yeah, it's like if we can we should just do an entire show on Undines and just dig as much as we can into the elementals. I love the elementals too, bro. That's what I was alluding to there. Yeah, the fire salamander association was huge. That was really surprised for me. I know that goes across into a lot of different yeah. cultures. Yes, definitely. Mayan culture, uh, underground, right? Yeah. Yep. Fire serpent. Oh, Plume serpents. <clears throat> um, yeah, the so with with you know, I've been doing that Bible show lately and we've been talking about these things and <laughs> Uh, on on Friday, uh, we got into a discussion about St. Patrick, and I had brought up this idea at that time that, you know, it's symbolical of the patriarchy taking over the matriarchy, and that's why it wasn't necessarily a physical warfare, but, but it was a, a spiritual one. And because St. Patrick, when we were talking to chat GPT, Roman and I, it said that he just went in there and like rechristened uh, the holy sites of the Druids or the sacred sites of the Druids into Christianity. He that, he just proclaimed it to be his. He just pretty much said, oh, this is belongs to God now instead of you. And then they even took uh, their like favorite goddess, uh, Brigid, and turned her into a saint. They turned her into Saint Brittany. And so they, they didn't really... They just changed it around to fit their paradigm. They didn't, that's all they did. And, and that's why the goddess worship is still so strong in Ireland because they, they never left that. They, so to me, it's like a fool's errand. It's like they say it got transformed into Christianity and it did in like that sense that now the people believe they're, they're do believe in Christianity and Catholicism, but, but the goddess is, is still, uh, being worshipped so i don't yeah. think it really ever got turned you know i think there's glad that you mentioned the association of the <laughs> serpent with uh tiamat because a lot of us associate the serpent with masculinity and we yeah. a lot of times people hear about the uh story of saint patrick extinguishing uh taking away the snakes uh people interpret that esoterically as the druids who we associated yeah with. but i think a lot of these um older wise groups of people and um priesthoods uh may have been associated as as men being the practitioners and priests but um they followed a matriarchal society and there was at least an even keel yes. of of maternal yes. maternal worship there that we failed to have in our history and it's kind of been weeded out the, but the S- yes Leviathan was uh the representation of tiamat in the biblical stories and the levites yeah yeah the, the i was just gonna say man like yeah the, that book that i uh when we did our dragon talk i was i was dick deep in um 
<laughs> Mysteries of the Dark Moon by Demetra George, which is a book that took me, I don't know how many months to like truly fully listen to because I'm not a fast reader. Um, I, I, I like, I will read something and I'll just be like mind blown. I'm like, ah, two pages in, I have to stop completely the rest of the day. Um, but it's the same with okay. listening to audiobooks. I have to listen to very little chunks. And I, and what she said is that the, the snake symbolism and dragon symbolism, all that, anything serpent has always been feminine. It always has been the matriarch. It's always been the triple moon goddess. It's always been that. And so, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying. And I still just recommend that you guys please let's get this book on Audible, and everybody listening get this book on Audible because it's so good, and we can all talk about this book at one point. But it's Mysteries of the Dark Moon by Demetra George. I love okay. it. I want to talk about that. Um, this triple goddess and triple male, uh, triple masculine, triple female. Yes. So the triple the feminine is is the crescent. It's the waning moon the waxing moon, and the full moon, right? And the same is true with uh, the masculine. It's the rising sun, the setting sun, and the high sun, the Uh sun at the most high. Mm -hmm. And when you take those, it forms a triangle too. And those are the three points of the triangle. Mm -hmm. And then when you connect those, you get your uh, upwards point triangle, downwards point triangle. The phallus and and the vulva. connect them together. Yeah, when you connect them together, you get your uh, star, David. You're right, your mm-hmm. uh, six-pointed star. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the balance. That's the blending of together because you also create that, like, vesica Pisces almost between the two triangles, right? And, and so that, that idea goes throughout everything. But we have taken out that uh, matriarchal triangle, and now we only go with the trinity of the male triangle. And I think uh, that is not good for society, and we need to bring that uh, bottom triangle back into yeah. being. And um, I think it's coming back, and uh, we're doing a good job of bringing I, it back. I think so. I think I really do feel like that. Um, and it, it, we might be experiencing that on like a level of like the fourth turning, or that uh, the concept of the fourth, the fourth turning, the eighty-year cycle that society kind of like goes through these waves. And if we're in the fourth turning now, then we might be going and curling the Ouroboros of the cyclic time of however our archetypal reality is. We're going into the beginning part, which will be a grand rising. Um, And it says anybody in the millennial class, like at this point, will be defined as the heroes and the, the generation younger than us are defined as like the artist of this new awakening that's going to happen. And I think the harder that we fight as, as a hero class to bring in the matriarchal society, I think we actually have a really good chance of doing that and pulling it around. It just depends on us to try as hard as possible to stay strong and to fight the, uh, the older dying generation and bringing the new light in. I really do. And so when you're describing that star David and these double you know, triangles, absolutely, bro. That's the alchemical marriage. It's what alchemy is explaining with the marriage of the sun and the moon and, you know, these different cycles. It's not one or the other is better than another, but it's it's how the balance works because that's how our reality works. We have the reality of the sun phases. We have the reality of the moon phases. And you and your life need to live in balance. 
You know, you need to stay up late sometimes and you need to go to bed early sometimes because sometimes you need to connect with the night energies in order to truly channel in some creative shit. And sometimes you need to stay up, you know, go to bed early so you can work the next day because that's the vibe of the sun is get your ass to work. But that dreamy, lucid state of the night when you could tap into creativity, that's the feminine. And so, um, you know, the pyramid, the top of the pyramid sticking out of the ground, it's phallic, right? The inside of the pyramid, that's why they were always matched below what they were above. The hermetic style of architecture was you dig out a foundation that's just as deep and just as high as the top of the building. So you would have those even in architecture. It's an archetypal architecture. Um, But back into the star, David, who was the father of Solomon, right? The Solomander, right? It was David. And so he literally took then the, yeah. the seal of Solomon always contained this ring. This powerful ring was his father's star, the perfect. And that's why uh, in all the sacred societies, <clears throat> and, and Templars, Masons, Rosicrucians, to an extent, you know, they, they practice and venerate Solomonic magic because it's it is it was a balanced point, balanced time. I love that, man. This is a, that's a great segue into that, bro. And yeah, this goddamn that. guy's mowing his lawn. I'm sorry. Oh, man. And I know uh, John E. was said to have gotten the ring of Solomon from the angels, probably Uriel and Michael, if I'm not mistaken. The powerful. Yeah, ring. that's also, I think that's why you see the Taj Mahal and you see like Washington, D.C. monument, uh, how it mirrors itself in the waters. The waters are the, the female uh, divinity, the earthly waters, and it's life, it's Eve. Uh, Eve is the river uh, and the life is the giving of that life. And so when you see that mere re- representation, it's also uh, showing you that balance. And it makes me almost wonder if maybe the Bible, uh, according to, you know, according to biblical people, they think it was written by these apostles and whatnot. But I'm starting to think that maybe it was written by Druids and shit. And they were putting this esoteric knowledge in there and hiding Hell it yeah. in their own shit uh, because they wanted people to be able to decide for this later and find out this esoteric knowledge because it was being hidden and they had to hide it somewhere. So they hid it right in their own books uh, for people to see and they didn't even realize it. And I think that's kind of why it got written or possibly was written by some of these uh, esoteric people like John D and you know, King James, King James has a lot of esotericism to him. Uh, he wrote a book on demonology. He married a Danish queen. And I think that maybe uh, either in regards to him or unbeknownst to him, these people that did uh, put the Bible together, put some of the sacred information in there and, King, and hit King, it away. King James deserves an entire breakdown on a slow burn one day. Yes. Dude, like I'd love that because I just explaining to people alone just to to look to compare Bibles and the different ages of the Bible and all the transit. That's probably what we should do. We should do a series on the transitions of Bible updates on a slow burn thing, like successively. Because I was just getting in because I got fucking check this out the other night. I was working and I, I told told the employees uh, at the cafe, I was like, you know, you guys can go home, I'll take care of the rest of the night, you know. They're like, you sure it's gonna be really busy? And I'm like, listen, your boy's a fucking hammer, 
and I need no one. All right, so get out of my way. <laughs> You're slowing me down, baby. Uh, no, but anyway, so they left, and so I was alone in the shop, and these ladies come in, and I'm, you know, I'm being nice, I'm doing my thing, and I'm making them food and stuff, and uh, <clears throat> they they were so sweet, and they they wanted to talk, you know, kept talk, kept talking, and then we got to a point in the conversation where they said, "Hey, we want to." Uh, we want to kind of like get, help you out a little bit. Like, and I'm like, okay, what's going on? They're like, we want to let you know that Jesus loves you tremendously. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, thank you. I love Jesus. That is amazing. And they're like, uh, well, you, 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 you do love Jesus, but you don't, you don't really know how, like how much he sacrificed himself to save you oh and that you need to be sacrificing more of your time in order to be a true love of God and that to devote your time and your love. And I was like, and we got in this whole thing, right? And I was loving this. I was like, great, let's let's talk about this. Let's go fucking deep on it. You know, I'm like, I'm oh, yeah. closed, the shop's closed. And uh it was yeah. hilarious. They kept they kept telling me basically, no matter what I would say, is there there's no amount of love I could tell them that I had for God and the archetypes that exist in earth and all the things. But that they had to just continuously say that I I had no this no unless you sacrifice your time and energy completely into Jesus then I was like they wouldn't listen to any history anything at all uh, they just kept repeating the same things and first time I'd ever actually gotten hounded by a group of Christians like that yeah man I got something to say wow. first time. Are you familiar with Jordan Maxwell the master of syncretism mm-hmm. recently yeah. passed on RIP. But no, he, he was under the impression that the Druids went into hiding after they were driven out by St. Patrick and became the Judaic people and created a false history that they had been around in older times, but that they were actually not around for uh, as long as we think. And we know that they started to put the vowels into the Hebrew language around um, only about 200 years ago. And so uh, also Dude. we have Hollywood... Uh, representing the, the Hollywood this. wands of the Druidic people. So there's a lot of tie-ins to connect the the Judaic and the Druidic. It could be a big connection. Yes. That's, That's funny like, you brought up the vowels. The Try vowels. the dam right there. Connects the Hebrew to the Druids. Exactly. Dude, the, 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 I, was gonna, I actually had this kind of thought earlier when Mario was talking about going from like the, uh, the graves all being together to being singular graves and the independent, uh, and I was saying Atlantis, Lemuria. Atlantis starts with an A, right? Starts with the vowel, but Lemuria starts with the L. Uh, Atlantis couldn't be like taken like A L, right? Like Al or All or Allah, Atlantis. And then Lemuria is just the L without the vowel in front of it. And so I started thinking about the vowels are symbolic of the body of man because it's five, it's a limb of five, right? The five vowels. Um, and, uh, or the chakras, right? Like you can go to whatever. Sometimes there's seven different depends on the, which, which language you're looking at, but it's like the use of vowels is like almost patriarchal in that sense that it's, you know, it's solely focusing on the singular body as opposed to the bigger macro body, you know, the micro and, and, and everything in the patriarchal system being taken down and broken down. So finite, you need to have everything quantumized and categorized and put into these boxes, but as opposed to this bigger celestial picture, allowing you to escape that small prison and prism of the, of the patriarchal 
gridlock box that they put you in. When you would break that, you experience the womb on a greater level and like this, this, like this flowing effervescence of like true creativity, you know? And it's like the vowels kind of that kind of, when you say that dude, bro, I a hundred percent agree. I think that that is alone is a part of like the modern language magic to put in there. And and vowels are hundred, hundred percent divinatory and interesting, very deep dive to look at. You can connect so many more things when you're a little flexible with those vowels. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, we talked about this on Abs and Flows also because uh, we're doing uh, Chapter 5 about Enoch right now and, uh, nice. and, and Chapter nice. 4 was about Cain. And um, so we were talking about the vowels and how the, the vowels were sacred and that's why Hebrew uh, originally didn't have any vowels in it uh, is because they didn't put God into the words. They, it was very sacred. And then so when you take a vow, when you get married, you're taking a vow, but that's also you, uh, you're adding God into it. So then you're doing that alchemical marriage, but putting the vow into your marriage, you're adding the vowels to your marriage. So you're putting God into it. Uh, so I think that's uh, pretty, pretty interesting with that marriage and the alchemical Very marriage much. kind of concept. Um, and then the letters and um, how much power they have, because we know that letters all come from spelling and they were used for the, the original use was for incantations, not actually for uh, trading and, and accounting and stuff. Uh, there's a, a, a document that uh, ancient origin has that comes from um, the Danube River Valley Civilization. And it was a form of writing that predates the Sumerians by Two to three thousand years, so around uh, six to seven thousand BC, and this whole document uh, shows these different signs and sigils that they were using to write down. And it, basically, what they were saying is they were using the writing to connect um, and use it for divinatory mm-hmm. purposes. Mm-hmm. So originally, spelling started. Spell casting, which is why it's yeah. called spelling in the fucking first place. So you have that <laughs> exactly. direct connection from from incantations uh, to the alphabet, and then when you get mar- married, you're you're putting the vowels back in. So you're reconnecting your triad, you your and your opposite to uh, the heavenly realm, and creating that new triangle. Ah. Uh. Okay, yeah, so that you have the three bodies of man and the one body of God being that, like, yeah. the three elements, and then the fourth is ether, right? That kind of concept. You're Adam and Eve. You're Adam and Eve to your God, yeah. Uh, and that's, yeah, that's interesting. The word vowel is, like, vow, like your wedding vows. Yeah. And then L at the so end, like God, oath. to yeah. bring in God. And you're taking an oath, yeah. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yo, we should probably wrap up because we have a live stream soon and I need to put some slides together and do some more reading. <laughs> yeah. Um, Me too, man. This What's has been a great voice. Hey, we'll talk about that. <laughs> let's uh, let's stop recording and uh, we'll, we'll talk about that, yeah. All right, everybody. Uh, much love to you. Uh, yeah. And thank you. And hey, don't forget to check out some of these sweet designs on Buy Yourself a T-Shirt. Buy your mama a t-shirt and XXL so she can wear it to sleep and have etheric dreams. Check it out. Yeah, we got some nice merch. And if you're not down Sorry. with that conversation with Maria Wheatley, then wait. Why?
This fall. 